Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. The Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. My favorite part of this radio show is the interviews. It really is. My second favorite part might be the phone calls that we take as we mix it up. We've had them great in the last couple of weeks, and yesterday's show was no exception. Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, outspoken, candid. Um, You know, I've criticized him over the years and said, you know, why doesn't Barnes speak out more? Why doesn't he speak his mind? Holds back. Talks a little bit too much about feasibility studies and strategic strategic plans. Uh, But, you know, why doesn't he speak out more? I I didn't have that complaint yesterday. I did not have that complaint as he was speaking about the, the problems that he saw on the horizon, the idea that he's not sure if he wants to play Oregon in a Civil War football game moving forward beyond this year. And on today's show, you're going to hear a couple of more outspoken interviews. You know why? Because I line up candid guests who are going to spit it straight to you. They're going to spit truth, so to speak. Chris Hill will be joining us this hour. Who's Chris Hill? Glad you asked. He's the former Utah athletic director, spent 31 years at the University of Utah, engineered Utah's arrival in the Pac-10 years ago, became the Pac-12 when Utah and Colorado came in. And I feel a little bit like a historian now. Children, gather round. We're going to talk about when the Pac-12 conference existed. Um, But he engineered that transition for Utah athletics, and he was part of the conference under some shaky leadership. Larry Scott being the commissioner of the Pac-12. Well, Chris Hill will join us because he called me the other day right after the show. I mentioned this yesterday, 6.01, and this happens. You know, I don't know if people call you when they know that you're, quote-unquote, I'm going to use air quotes, off work. What happens to me every day at the end of the radio show, as I say, the bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time, There's about a seven-second delay, and then every family member, every friend, every listener, every sponsor, they call my phone simultaneously. It's like, oh, he's off air. Let's grab him now, because now is the time to get him. It's right before, before he can reach for a drink or a glass of water or use the bathroom. Get him now. And so what happens is the phone rings, and Chris Hill, it's kind of like Family Feud, you know, where they say, uh, top five answers on the board. Tell us, uh, you know, uh, uh, three kinds of business that uh, you'd want to be involved in. Stephen buzzes in and says, show business? Show business, yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. I was, uh, we're, we're, we're playing a game show here. Yeah, no, sorry. We uh, no. were doing a little crazy thing. No, here, it's yeah. fine. It's fine. So Stephen buzzes in and says, show business. Well, what happens is, at, at 6.01 or whatever the end of the show time is actually on the clock, my friends go, ooh, now's the time to get him. Like three or four people all at the same time. Chris Hill, the Utah Athletic Director, must have been streaming the show that day 
or he knew. It's 601, John's available. And so he called me, and he lit into me. Not, not really into me, but he just kind of let loose in one of these stream-of-consciousness flows where he was talking about how disappointed he was with university presidents. University presidents, athletic directors, coaches, you know, all the people that could speak out on behalf of the Pac-12 conference athletes that are getting dragged around the country, the non-revenue generating athletes. Yeah, you know, he's, he's basically saying, where are the coaches? Where are the athletic directors? Where are the university presidents? Yeah, you know, aside from like Michael Crow at Arizona State and Robert Robbins at Arizona and Kirk Schultz at Washington State speaking up, you know, as their team is transitioning to a new university and talking about how great it's going to be, you haven't heard university presidents say a peep about the basketball, the women's basketball, the baseball team, the softball team. They're not talking about him. They're not talking about the 5,000 other athletes in the Pac-12 conference, and it's a real disservice. And Chris Hill just blistered him, saying they don't have the guts, no one will speak out. And, you know, in about a 25-minute phone call, I just kind of let him go. You know, sometimes sometimes it's my job to be a good listener. I've learned that as a dad, three daughters, a wife. I've got two sisters. I've got a mom. Sometimes it's good for the guy who hosts the radio show just to listen. You know, and I and I will listen and go, you know, that must really be hard. And, you know, I'll empathize and I'll kind of, you know, talk back. But Chris Hill was going and he was talking about the presidents and how uh, ridiculous it is that it seems as though none of the presidents have given this much more thought than just football. And football is important. Let's let's say that up front on today's show. Chris Hill will talk all about that. I'm sure he'll make it clear that football is a very important thing that, you know, is uh, part of every discussion. But. You know, you've got a lot of other things involved if we're being real. Like everybody, you know, we all collectively rolled our eyes at the idea of a student athlete. Like, but if you're being real, there are a lot of other things that are involved when it as it pertains to the college campus than you know, there's a lot more things than football. But football funds everything, so everybody talks about football, right? You know, it's it's yeah, that's the family business at every university. It's football. That's what brings home the bacon. You know, uh, you know, volleyball and baseball, you know, you win national championships and you, you put trophies in the trophy case. And certainly there are a lot of there are uh, more athletes involved in non-revenue generating sports than revenue generating sports. But we all know that the money that is derived from the TV deals that come out of football are paying for everything. They're subsidizing everything. And so football has to take precedent like everybody gets that. But I think you're going to hear and I think we're already hearing some sentiment in uh in the you know the the space so to speak for football to break away from everything else the night commission just came out with a report today and they are basically a statement today saying that um you know they believe that major college athletics needs to reevaluate the relationship that football has with the rest of uh of the uh of the enterprise on campus and, and in fact they're saying power 5 football in particular is the uh, is the uh, big driver of problems when it comes to uh, you know finding uh, losing your way and Chip Kelly, I mean he said it best, didn't he? Like he said it so simply that no one could argue with this. Notre Dame is an independent in football, but they're in a conference or everything else. Why aren't we all independent for football and take the 64 teams in Power Five, make that one division, take the 64 teams in Cooper Five, make that another division. We play for a championship, they play for a championship. No one else gets affected. Our sport's different than everybody else. We only play once a week. 
travel's not a big deal for football, but it is a big deal for other sports. So Chip Kelly's speaking out, but others are not. Why? Why is Chip Kelly talking and others won't talk? Why are the athletic directors at Washington State and Oregon State more outspoken than maybe the athletic directors at Washington and Oregon at this stage? Why? Ask yourself that, because I think the answer is pretty simple. You know, nobody wants to get fired. Nobody wants to get in trouble with their boss. Chip Kelly, he doesn't really have a boss. Martin Jarmon, the athletic director at UCLA, extended Chip Kelly, um, you know, gave him additional years, gave him additional job security. Chip Kelly doesn't need it. He's kind of his own man, and I understand that, you know, he's he's kind of able on his campus. Gene Block, his university chancellor at, at UCLA, is just announced he's leaving, and it's not like Chip Kelly's got a lot to answer to on campus at UCLA, and he happens to be going with the halves. And so I think he can speak out and he can say, look, you know, basically, look over at the women's soccer program at UCLA. It's not the same as football. They're traveling different than football that gets on a chartered plane six times a year. It's not the same enterprise. Baseball's not the same as football. Volleyball, not the same. Women's basketball, not the same as the other sports. And I think I think you're going to see a real push in the coming week or ten days, maybe two weeks, from a lot of different voices that will pop up. I mean, I think I would not be surprised to see major college coaches, mark my words, major college coaches in non-revenue-generating sports at the top of their game popping up in the New York Times with an op-ed saying, hey, wait a minute, why are we getting dragged along for the ride? But it's going to take those voices. It's going to take Tara Vanderveer at Stanford, you know, Gino Ariema at UConn. It's going to take you know, those kinds of coaches and personalities who are not afraid of their athletic director who are not afraid of their university president to get anything done. And you're going to hear Chip uh, Kelly talk more about it because Chip Kelly doesn't care. He isn't beholden to anybody. And I like that about Chip Kelly. It's probably why you know I see eye to eye with him even when we don't agree. Like it's, it's, We can disagree and have a civil disagreement. I've always felt that way with Chip Kelly. And, and I think he's felt that way back. Like, you know, it's okay. We can disagree. We don't have to agree on everything. How boring would that be? But I think you're going to hear... Chris Hill, the former athletic director at Utah, in just a couple minutes, joined this show. I don't know if he's going to be as mad as he was the other night. Might have been fresh on his mind. But he was fresh off a conversation the other night with Bob Bowlesby, the former commissioner of the Big 12 Conference. And I think they were lamenting how ridiculous it is that the football programs in Power 5 Conference in particular are dictating the travel for volleyball, basketball, baseball, and, you know, what's wrong with the Pac-12 conference members looking over and going, hey, wait a minute, our football programs really need to go to the Big Ten and the Big 12. Everybody kind of understands that on a fundamental economic level that, hey, that was a, the, the university decided, the president decided, the AD decided, the, you know, the key boosters decided that that was a fundamental decision that needed to be made. And we made our decision, but guess what? Instead of a $35 million a year distribution, we're going to take a little less from the Big 12 or the Big 10 or whatever your conference you're joining, and instead we're going to leave behind all of our non-revenue-generating sports, and we're going to let them try to fend for themselves under the umbrella of the Pac-12 networks, you know, sell subscriptions. Would people buy that? I don't know. Would people buy a subscription to watch 
Pac-12 women's basketball, baseball, volleyball, if you got it all-inclusive, how much would you pay? I don't know. It wouldn't be the $100 a year that Apple was trying to command for for uh, football, but it would, you know, maybe they'd buy something. I would sign up for it just by virtue of the fact that it's my job, and maybe there's enough fans out there of the non-revenue-generating sports that would tune in and watch it and pay for it, and, and maybe it funds itself. I don't know. Are people asking these questions? Chris Hill is, the Utah Athletic Director. He's, he's excited about it. He's being idealistic. He's being dreamy. He's going, hey, wait a minute, before we uh, sell all the way out, why not just sell the football program out and leave everything behind? Like, that makes sense. And, again, I mentioned the Knight Commission coming out today. Here is this commission that's been formed and really is comprised of all the group of five and the small college presidents and personalities. You know, the Power Five Conference kind of ignores the Knight Commission. But all the Knight Commission does is kind of advocate for, like, hey, wait a minute, is this good for college athletes? Is this good for the game? And they came out today and they said, hey, this realignment thing, it's football-driven, we get it, it's bad for the game, and, you know, you need a reevaluation. Football should just splinter off and be its own thing, and damn it, that's just what Chip Kelly just said just a few days ago. Like, it's, I think it's ridiculous that we're watching, A, the loss of tradition and history kill a conference, right? It's ridiculous to me. But I understand it on some fundamental level. I think we all do. We all understand that money is driving everything. Money is driving the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA. It's driving free agency in those sports. It's driving kickoff times and tip times. It's driving, you know, the schedule of your life and your sports calendar as it pertains to when, when are the Olympics going to be held? Well, what country are they in and what time is that going to be on? Well, let's ask TV and get back to you. Like, TV's driving it all. Money's driving it all. And we understand that, that that's a necessary evil that the teams have signed on for. But while it's driving college football's realignment, maybe it doesn't need to drive baseball realignment or women's basketball realignment or, you know, where's the volleyball team playing? Like, you know, soccer teams? Like, it's just silly to me to think that, you know, the college presidents who probably didn't think about anything else but football, to think that they are now sitting back going, you know, we did what was in the best interest of our university. Did they? Or did they do what was in the best interest of their football program? Because they'll justify it, sure, by saying, hey, we had to take the money because that money funds our other sports. Well, did anybody bother to ask the Big Ten Conference, hey, what if it was just football? You know, like Notre Dame, you know, how Notre Dame plays. You know, Notre Dame says, hey, our schools, our, our athletes will be, uh, you know, a, a member of the uh, ACC in every sport except for football because we want to be independent. Uh, BYU has already proven that you could be independent and have your other sports be part of other conferences. Why didn't that happen with the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors? And as we have unpacked the last, uh, you know, six to 12 months of activity and, and brain power of these Pac-12 presidents and chancellors, I got to say, I'm less than impressed with what I see, both with an outcome and with the process. And I'm kind of left wondering, did anybody bother to think about it? And I think Chris Hill, the Utah Athletic Director, is on the same damn page. We'll find out as he's coming up here in just a few minutes. We got a great show for you today. Also on the show, KJR's Jason Puckett. I joined Puck's show Every Tuesday on KJR for just a few minutes, I pop in. We talk about what's going on in the conference, the Pac-12. Um, he's a Portland guy 
who loves him some Washington State football. That's where he went to school. That's the program he follows. I think his heart is a little broken. I think he's a little sad. Everybody's kind of looking at Stanford and Cal trying to figure out what's going to happen with Stanford and Cal. You got Condoleezza Rice and former President George W. Bush pushing for SMU and Stanford to get into the ACC. Cal may be along for the ride. Who knows? But uh, it's a wait and see for Washington State and Oregon State. And everybody's kind of expecting a resolution maybe in the next 12 to 36 hours now. Yesterday I said 48 hours. I mean, I think we're down to uh, you know a matter of the end of this week. Like by Friday at 5 p.m., 6 p.m., should the ACC have either admitted Cal and Stanford and admitted maybe SMU or not? And where does that leave Washington State and Oregon State? If that happens, it would obviously be a plan B scenario because plan A for Washington State and Oregon State is clearly trying to belong in uh, in uh, in the Pac-4 and trying to make it make a go of it, you know. And I asked Scott Barnes on yesterday's show, what can Oregon State do to position itself better for the next next round of realignment? And I also uh, asked him, like, what's the immediate step right now if you're Oregon State? It is, yeah, it is, and, and let, let's take care. Let's take care of today. Put the best opportunities together. Uh, commit to each other for a, a number of years um, with a, a media rights deal and a grant of rights that that probably has a little more flexibility than than in other grant of rights circumstances. And again, I say that to, for all of us to to be able to capture opportunities. I look at it more that way than than the fear of uh, somebody leaving yeah. again. All of it, all of it's uh, out there and, and could happen. But I I think more about the opportunities than I do the, the fear of losing somebody. There it is. He's talking about, you know, I asked him, would you be afraid that Stanford would leave even if you get him and try to rebuild? If you're 12 months into it, the Big Ten says, hey, we want Stanford. Now you're in a dire position. There's some question about who would want to be part of the Pac-12 moving forward. We'll unpack that a little bit. Would they really be interested in a rebuilt Pac-4, Pac-8 moved on themselves? Uh, You'll hear all of that. But Chris Hill, he is the former athletic director, 31 years at the University of Utah. He retired four, four years ago, four football seasons ago. Um, he's fired up about the Pac-12 breaking up. He's next. I want to bring Chris Hill, the Utah former Utah athletic director, on the show. He uh, you know, has had a life in college athletics, even from his time as a student at Rutgers, and on to uh, bringing Utah into the Pac-12 back in the day. And then uh, now, from his vantage point, 20,000-foot uh, view, watching the carnage of the Pac-12, and I want to bring him back on and just kind of talk uh, about what he's seeing. Chris Hill, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, I, uh, thank you for having me. It's something that uh, is concerning. I've talked to other folks around the country, and uh, Bob Bowlesby and I are pretty good friends. I talked to him for commissioner of Big 12, and it just seems like there's roadkill that was not necessary. You know, and the presidents are in charge, and they have to keep football whole financially. And, you know, whether, you, whether we agree or disagree, they did what they had to do to, to financially take care of football because that's number one. You know, in terms of running the department, you need the money, right? And, but also, I just wonder, there's presidents are there to help all students, you know, in their academic endeavors and their experience, and that's highfalutin. But the Pac-12 has those schools that are serious academic schools. 
And there's now 5,000 student-athletes that are not in football that are disenfranchised. Uh, they may not admit it. There's also all the recruits. I mean, I have a neighbor whose kid's going to go to Cal next year now wondering, what am I doing? So there's that whole other group. You can't deny the football thing. I would not want anybody to see a discussion that we're blind to the fact that football stirs the deal with TV, and it's probably going to happen again. All right, so my concern is, did the presidents take the energy and the time, and I'm naive, okay, take the time to say, okay, let's stop a minute. We're going to take care of football. Is our other goal to leave everybody else in the Pac-12 and run the league that way? Did they take the time to do that? Did they, you know, the way it went so fast, they probably didn't have time. But is it over yet? No, not really. I mean, I just wish that the presidents, you know, from I'm talking Big Ten and um, Big 12, I wish the presidents would somehow get in a room with just a few other presidents from the other league, no commissioners, and talk about the strain it is on the other sports in the Pac-12 and is their way, because there's going to have to be. Otherwise, more and more non-revenue sports are going to be gone. Again, football is important. It runs the whole deal. But that I have to be roadkill along the way. So are, so are you saying, sit- Chris, Chris, are you saying that, you know, what essentially Chip Kelly came out, you know, when all this second right. round of expansion or realignment happened, and he said, you know, we're different than other sports. Why not separate us, have football do our own thing? Are you saying maybe the Big Ten Conference, the Big 12 Conference takes the football programs, but the non-revenue generating sports continue to compete in something resembling the Pac-12? And, and how does that work financially in your mind? Well, in my mind, now this is, again, idealistic. So let's say part of the pack, uh, the Big 12 money was related to basketball. Well, even if you could leave basketball and just take the other sports, because they don't get any money. But let's even take basketball and say, okay, maybe basketball was part of this TV. Why don't we take, at a $30 million, take a $3 million haircut, move all the sports back to the Pac-12, and with all those sports, figure out how to make up that $3 million. Okay. I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm saying you need to be in a closed door and ask questions like that. And look another president in the office tech and say, this will help our whole university, Mr. President or Ms. President. And we got 55,000 great, student, 55, great students that are disenfranchised for, we think, no real reason. You know? And the model has to somehow have – you know, it's going to get smaller for football, but the other sports, uh, they don't outplay football. I'm going to repeat myself a hundred times because I never want that to be a deal. But can't you do both at the same time? Can't you take football and spend some energy saying, what is best for these folks? And you can't tell me that anybody thinks it's best for these folks for the Pac-12 Olympic sports to go down a tube. Chris Hill is with us, uh, former athletic director at Utah uh, was there more than, I think you were there 31 years, is that right? Yeah, 31 years. 31 years, you hired coaches, Rick Majerus, Urban Meyer, Ron McBride, Kyle Whittingham, and um, you built the you built the empire, and then you know they joined the Pac-10 and make it the Pac-12. Now you watch it get unwound. I mean, you were there in the Larry Scott era. How, how frustrating does it feel to, uh, to have been, I guess, pointed in this direction so many years ago and now to see it end where it ends well you know i i understand that some of this stuff has to happen it's just the way it is you know but it's really sad it's hard to think about the coaches that you work with and how 
there's travel plans are so good now. You go to the Bay Area, you can go on a Friday women's basketball, get home Sunday night, or go Thursday, get home Sunday. I mean, it just makes all the sense. So it's really depressing for me in a way. I mean, depressing may be too strong because I don't have any skin in the game now. But it also is like our, a lot of kids came to Utah because of the Pac-12. You know, not just athletes, but other students because we had that moniker. And I just hate to see us throw away those other, all the other sports that have tremendous meaning and regionalization is where it should be. University presidents, it seems like such a simple thing. Hey, why don't they think about it? You know how the university presidents think. Do you think those questions are asked behind closed doors or are they listening to the consultants in it's just football, football, football that they think about and, you know, and, and maybe they don't ask the question? Well, now's the time they could, you know. I mean, there's no, nothing's ever over. It's never over till it's over from the great philosopher Yogi. And, you know, I mean, you still could ask that question. But that's why I said if you get presidents in a room, just a few of them, and it's president to president, they cannot explain. Maybe they don't feel that way. But if they do feel that their volleyball team is somewhat disenfranchised, and this is idealistic, can they talk to the – volleyball that this other school at a place like Texas Tech and say, hey, can you see it our way? No money you're going to lose, but we're going to help these folks. Chris, you cut out there for just a second, but, you, you know, it, when we look at the simplicity of what you're suggesting, I, I just feel like it should have been a no-brainer, and maybe it does separate someday. What obstacles do you see to that line of thinking? Is it difficult for a university to go, hey, we want to give $3 million back and we want to keep our non-revenue generating sports in the Pac-12? Is is that an unthinkable conversation in today's uh, climate? Well, I, I, I think it, sh- it should not be because we're heading down this train uh, track that is what it is, what we see with the Pac-12. If it can happen to the Pac-12 non-revenue sports, man, who can it happen to? But I know, you know, sometimes things are really complicated and sometimes there's not as complicated as we think. I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying, is the good fight going to be fought? Are you going to do it all, give it, give it up for the squad, and see if you can make that happen? And if you can't, then you can't. You know, I mean, there'd be, you know, maybe there's presidents in the Big 12 that are volleyball team to travel all over the country. I don't know that. But I sure as heck, by the way, say that. I don't think a president there cares that they, they wouldn't mind him being back. But it's not that simple. But is a good fight going to be fought? Uh, let me ask you by this. The people that run it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Chip Kelly comes out and he talks. And I'm not surprised by that because he's got multiple years left on his contract. He's got good footing at UCLA. He's not going to have his university president breathing down his neck for speaking out because his president's, is, you know, Gene Block's leaving. And so he's in an unusual position. I have talked with a lot of coaches in the conference in revenue gener- non-revenue generating sports who are not happy about the travel. They're not happy about it. They liked the Pac-12. The Women's Basketball Conference was a great conference with a lot of competition, a lot of success. That's all being blown up in the name of making football work. Why don't you think more ADs and more coaches will speak publicly about this? Uh, Well, I can tell you ADs don't keep their job if they lose in football. But they keep their job if they win in football, regardless of everything else now. That's the way it's been the last five or six years. I'm not being flippant about it. So I think you got to be a person who supports football. If you start talking about the other sports, somehow I think it, that's why I've said it like four times in a row, that if you start talking about the other sports, you're thinking, why are you doing that? 
you know, it's all just about football. And I think that coaches, uh, I know I've talked to a couple, not just here, that are petrified of the word. You know, and I just don't think they can come out and speak because they don't want their president upset with them. And the board of trustees would then be upset with the president that he's got unhappy people. But God bless Chip Kelly. You know, he 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 did what was right. He he made people think. The people who will speak out are few and far between. AD's coaches and players are not going to call out their president. It's and if they if they're whistleblowers, they sure as hell aren't going to announce their name in the paper, you know. Yeah. So I don't blame them for that, you know, because they just really are in such a precarious situation. So it's hard unless they're a superstar coach, you know. I keep thinking about that, and I think if you know if, if people don't speak up, and I'm glad you are. But if people don't speak up and say, hey, why are we doing it the way we're doing it? Nothing ever gets changed. Nothing gets thought about. There's no pressure created by anything other than television. And on that note, I got to ask you, uh, you know, you you probably foresaw the influence of television over the years. Now we're watching it not only drive kickoff times, but drive, you know, the uh, the fueling of conference affiliation. Um, is this, is there ever, is it ever going to come back? Will this ever be unwound? Or do you think this is just how it is, Chris? I think it's how it is. I think football's going to continue to drive it. It's a very popular sport. Heck, I love watching football. And it's the one where the money's going in, And but the ESPNs and the Foxes of the world are going to start to be more careful. And maybe it's in their best interest to have fewer leagues, you know? And who knows? But but I don't see it going back. I don't see it going back. I, the only that's why I'm so thinking that with this thing with the Pac-12 right now, if it doesn't get addressed soon, then it, and if it can happen to Pac-12, it'll happen to anybody. Yeah, you you mentioned a couple of times that nothing's done until it's done. Give us an idea in that world because the perception is this is all done. Are you saying that there's a chance here if the Pac-12 got itself together and the non-revenue generating sports at the various universities got together that aside from football? The Pac-12 could be rebuilt as, you know, the uh, the haven for the Olympic sports at those universities. Well, you know, I think it, I think it has to be part of the. You have to ask the presidents at the schools. Did you did you think about this? And they'll say, of course we did. But the point is, was there time spent? In it? Would you consider back together, not for money? And it won't hurt your bottom line, but do you feel it's worth it to try to do that? You know, and if the question is, we've already done it, I guess they've already done it. If their answer is, yeah, maybe we should give it a shot. You know, and if they've already done it, then they've done it. And do you, you think know, they have? Do you think they have? I. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they. I think they talked about football and nothing else. Well, I think it happened so fast that I don't know how a conversation about volleyball would get a second worth of, you know, interest. You know, that's yeah. why maybe you can go back and say, hey, what do you guys think now that we rushed through it? We love where we are in football. We understand it. And is there any consideration of the other sports? Uh, I'll give you this an- anecdotally, Chris, that my phone was ringing in the last two weeks during the radio show, and my text messages were blowing up from – non-football coaches at various Pac-12 universities who were checking in with me to try to find out what was happening. I know they weren't getting information on their own campuses. I don't think the ADs were talking with 
anything more than maybe the football coach and you know their university president. And I think that circle was pretty closed on some on most of those schools, if not all of them. Well, you know, it'd be suicide for an AD to speak up against this thing right now. It'd be suicide, you know. And uh, you know, there's zero, zero motivation unless the people at the very, very top say, "Okay, let's take a breath." Let's just think about this without hurting the big picture. But I don't see that happening, and I understand that it's really closed at most universities. It's like, hey, we're not talking about this. Chris Hill, the former University of Utah athletic director with us. Uh, before I cut you loose, uh, you know, I know that um, university presidents and executives and ADs listen to this show, Chris. Uh, make, a, make a pitch to them. If they're listening to the, your interview now, what would you ask of them if you're advocating on behalf of maybe those non those 5,000 athletes that you mentioned on those campuses? Well, you know, first of all, I'd hope that they didn't think I'm working there, but part of the reality, that is true. You know, you can't speak out. I just ask them to, to, to say to themselves, and it's so idealistic of me, but I thought we can get in the Pac-12, so I'm idealistic, and that – do they feel that they've done the best thing and fought the good fight for 5,000 non-football playing student athletes? Could they be in a better position than they are today? And will you down with a few other presidents from the PAC, Big, 12, Big 12 without the commissioners and have that discussion? It has How's to that? happen on the presidential level, doesn't it? It, it needs to be the oh, presidents. Yeah, it can't be the commissioners in my mind. It just can't. Chris Hill, I appreciate you. Uh, you're candid. You're authentic. Uh, you're always welcome on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. Bye-bye. Really strong stuff from Chris Hill. He's really got me thinking about it. I hope you think about it as well. Are the presidents and chancellors listening? Are the athletic directors who have been afraid to speak out and tell their presidents, hey, you know, it really works for football, moving to the Big Ten or moving to the Big 12, but doesn't work for women's basketball and golf and tennis. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for baseball. It doesn't work in so many ways. Uh, they'll go along with it because that's where the money's buried. But could they unwind these deals and remove just football? Hey, football program's going to go play. How much money do we give back to the TV partners and allow the non-revenue generating sports to, uh, you know, let them, let them take that ambitious let's sell candy bars door-to-door tactic with the Apple deal in the Pac-12 conference? Would Would women's basketball fans sign on for that? Would baseball fans sign on for that? I'd sure like to see it. Good stuff from Chris Hill. Leave it here. NBA releasing the schedule today, including the midseason tournament, much-anticipated midseason tournament. Blazers stuck with the Jazz, the Suns, the Lakers, and the Grizzlies in their pool they will not get out of that pool, Stephen. That is my bold take for the day. They will not advance out of that pool. I don't feel like I'm out on a limb there. They are uh, they are the bottom feeder in that pool. My question for you, Stephen, is as the schedule came out, I was left wondering how many games Damian Lillard will play in a Blazers uniform this season. If I was fashioning a poll question, which I may be doing as you're answering this question, um, how many games would you set the over-under for Lillard to actually be in a Blazers uniform and play a minute? That's a good question. Um, if I was setting the line, let me let me look at let me count this games here. 
I would say 25 and a half because I, I do think right now it seems as if Dame is going to be in a Trailblazers uniform when the season starts. Now, I may be wrong. Mm-hmm. He may be traded tomorrow. He may be traded today. But right now, it seems like with everything that's been said, it seems like the Blazers aren't going to just give him up to the Heat for what the Heat have offered right now. I can't, I can't imagine the Heat making some type of deal where they're going to get more assets and then get Dame. So I think Dame starts with the Blazers, and I mm-hmm. think he gets through November. And then you look at December right around when that in-season tournament starts, and you look at wherever the Heat are, if the Heat are struggling a little bit or you know they just need a change and they feel like Dame is answered, that's when they really get aggressive and they try to make their offer um, up a little bit more. And then at that point, we have seen some of their players, Jaime Hawkins Jr., see how he performs in the NBA. Maybe he boosts his value a little bit. I think around December, that's when the trade talk really starts going. Um, so I think right around there is where, you know, right around Christmas time, that's when the Heat would really get aggressive with trying to make that trade. Yeah, you think uh, heading into the uh, February trade deadline, I guess, would be the big thing. The The regular season starts October 24th. Then the in-season tournament comes pretty quickly, November 3rd to December 9th. Then comes the All-Star break in February. Regular season ends uh, April 14th. Then comes the play-in tournament. Like, if you were just getting out of a coma and you were like, wait a minute, in-season tournament, play-in tournament, you know, like it. You know, all these. Do are they getting it right? Do you like that the NBA's tinkering around a little bit? I mean, I, I get. I like the. I like the play-in tournament. I think that's fun. I think that's a good idea to have ten teams in. I'm still waiting to degrade out this in-season tournament. I don't quite fully get what the players are incentivized to get out of it, and I know that they get you know two hundred thousand dollars for every winner. Um, if they win the tournament, every player on the team gets two hundred thousand dollars, and mm-hmm. so forth. If they get to the semifinals you get a cut as well. But, I mean, just for a couple extra $100,000 or $50,000, I believe, for the third and fourth place teams, like that doesn't doesn't seem like a lot of incentive um, to really want to go for this tournament and just be the NBA, be the champion of the NBA Cup. Like, that's what it is. It's the NBA Cup. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. So I, I'm waiting to see about that in-season tournament. But don't you, think, don't you think that part of the reason why they're having this mid-season tournament is because generally some of the top teams don't take it very seriously? And don't seem to flip the switch, so to speak, until they need to flip the switch. Like, are they aren't they trying to make the regular season just a little better? I, think that, that, I mean, isn't that what they're trying to do? I think they're just trying to make it a little more interest in the middle of the season when the NBA kind of takes over, right? Like, most people kind of think right around Christmas when the NBA season actually starts. And so I think that's kind of where it is. It's like, oh, well, we're going to pay attention to these games that are you know supposed to be important. And it's going to be like a game seven all over because it's going to be single elimination. And I think it's right around, you know, right around that time when a lot of the uh, casual people start watching the NBA. So I think they're trying to capitalize on that and just get some intense basketball going right from the start because, you know, the regular season is so long. And it's like you said, a lot of these teams don't necessarily uh, put it all together until the last couple months of the season. So I think, yeah, I think you are right that they're trying to, you know, motivate these players to play hard right when more eyeballs are being on them. I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, if people will get behind that play-in thing. It'll be also interesting to see how many games Lillard suits up for. Uh, I am creating that poll right now, so if you want to vote on that poll, you can go to Twitter. How many games will Damian Lillard play for the Portland Trailblazers this season? Here are my choices. I put zero, and then I put one to 25 as the second option, and then I put 26 to 42. As the third option, let's make it 41. And then 42 to 82. 
as the third option. So are you betting that he's going to play less than a game, uh, meaning zero? Is he gone? Yeah, uh, one to 25 games, um, uh, 26 to 41 games, or 42 to 82 regular season games. So there you go. How many regular season games will Damian Lillard play for the Blazers? Now, what do you think is going to win by, uh, by uh, you know, let's just say an hour from now when I check back in? What will be the leading vote getter in your mind? Will it be uh, zero, one to 25, 26 to 41, or 42 to 82? I think 26 to 41 will win. And, you know, the thing about that is is that's the least amount of games. Like, it's only 15 games, a margin you're giving yourself. But I really think that's right when the teams, like the Heat, are going to be going after him. Because that you in basketball especially, you need to get – you know, cohesion with your roster. And when Dame comes into the Heat or whoever team he goes to, he's going to demand the ball a lot, as he should. He's a top 75 player of all time, and you got to get that worked out. you got to get the kinks worked out. So that gives you, you know, 50, 60 games to get used to one another. You don't want to wait till the very end right for the trade deadline. I think that's just – we've seen that. it does. It's hard to implement a star player onto your team. So I think you give yourself a couple months, give yourself 50, 60 games to figure it out going into the playoffs. So I, I, I would vote 26 to 41. Uh, media day will uh, will approach here coming up in s- probably September. They usually hold it about the third week of September. If Lillard's still in uniform, what what does he have to say? What what do Blazer fans need to hear from him if he's still in a Blazers uniform and he has to sit up there and he has to talk to media and answer questions? You know, he can't pull a coach prime and say, "Oh, I'm not going to make it." He's got to face the music. Uh, you know, and here we are, probably five weeks away from media day for the Blazers. What does Lillard need to say on media day? I think he just needs to say, you know what, I'm under contract. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to play hard. And, you know, I love the city of Portland, and hopefully things work out. But I'm under contract, so I'm going to do what my contract says, and I'm going to come out and play hard every single night. And I, I think that's really all you, I would ask for out of Dame because, you know what, he, he's put himself in this spot where it seems like he wants out of Portland, which is fine, and we understand that. But at the same time, like you are under contract, and you know if you sit out, I think it's a bad look for Dame. So I think he just has to reiterate, like you know what, I signed this contract with the Portland Trail Blazers. I need to come out and play, you know, as much as I can until the Blazers trade me. But I, you know, he's not going to say that. He'll just say, you know what, as long as I'm under contract, I'll be out there giving it my all, and I think that's all I can ask for. How many regular season games will Damian Lillard play for the Trail Blazers this season? The polls out. It's on uh, Twitter at John Canzano BFT. Early returns, way too early returns, very even. Uh, as zeros getting some, getting getting some percentage, uh, you know, getting some votes. All, so is forty-two to eighty-two. So I think it's really interesting to see how people are divided and split, and maybe they're voting with their hearts. A lot of Blazer fans, a lot of anti-Blazer fans on my timeline right now duking it out. But I just, uh, I just voted, and I saw the one that I thought was the winner. Winner is the lowest. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the you know, this one, John. I don't it's, know. It's early. Like the very like uh, it's interesting from my standpoint as I see it populate with votes because like the first update I got was after 13 votes and zero was leading the way with 46%. Then uh, it just populated again and it went okay 35 votes and all of a sudden evened out between zero and 42 and watch what happens here. Now it's up to 92 votes uh, just in the last uh, 60 seconds. So it's uh, it's zero is leading the way with 34%. 42 to 82 is second at 29%. Um, 1 to 25 is getting about a quarter of the vote this po- to this point, and uh, we'll follow this. If I had to vote it, I do think he's going to suit up because the people keep asking me what's going to happen with him. You know, 
I don't I don't I don't pretend to to know what Damian Lillard's thinking. But he seems like he's over it, right? Like he's like a lot of Blazer fans who are going, I am over this. I have lived this for a decade. I know it. I understand it. I'm out. Like uh, I don't want any more of this. Seems over it. But I know the Blazers ownership, using air quotes, management, using air quotes, I know them better than I know Damian Lillard. And I don't think Jody Allen and Burt Cole are going to want to be embarrassed by whatever deal they get for Lillard. And I think because of that, they're going to move very slowly and they'll move very carefully and they'll move painfully slow because it's what billionaires do and big companies do when they make decisions. It'll be a big committee cluster where they're going and consulting and they're asking people, is this a good deal? And they're coming back. And so I don't think it's going to happen rapidly. I think we've already seen that kind of unfold. And I think they're going to want to look like they're going to, it's a face saving deal for them. They're going to want to look like they didn't get ripped off. So they're probably looking at Rudy, Rudy Gobert and the deal that the Jazz got for him. And they're looking at Kevin Durant. And they're looking at those two deals and they're going, we need that kind of first round uh, action. We need those picks so that we can hold it up and go, hey, we didn't get ripped off. Because that's all that's going to be important to the Blazers. Like, you know, and I, I mean, I don't mean the Blazers franchise. I mean, Burt Cold and Jody Allen. They're going to want to know and they want people to think they didn't get ripped off. And so because of that, I think it's going to be painful for the way that this unfolds. I think I'm predicting, you know, it's like watching uh, somebody in quicksand, you know, try to take small steps. Like, I, that's kind of how this is going to unfold. So I do think it will be somewhere above 26 games, either 26 to 41 or 42 to 82. Leave it here. I'm on the edge of my seat with this poll. 246 votes in now. How many regular season games will Damian Lillard play for the Blazers this season? So far, zero, leading the way at 40.7%. Second, 42 to 82, 25.6%. After that, 22% say 1 to 25 games, and only 11.8% say 26 to 41 games. Hmm. You're in that minority there. I am. Makes me feel good about myself. You know, I, I don't want to – I like to go – I like to zig when everyone's zagging. But you I will, are zigging. I will, I will say, though, um, <laughs> the people that voted zero, they, they're probably right. They might be right because uh, you, can oh. still, you can still bet on this, John. This is still on DraftKings. Miami Heat still the favorite to be the team that Dane plays the next regular season minute for. They're minus 225, Blazers plus 330. Yeah. Remember about it, you know, a couple of months ago, it was like 9-1 to one or 10-1 to one, the Blazers, and you and me both said, it's not a terrible bet. I think when I looked at it, they were 7-1 to one to have the first minute, and they're down, what, to 330, you yep, said? Yeah, plus 330, so. What are the Utah Jazz at? That, that was the other team I kind of was looking at going, hey, if you're going to pick an outlier. They, uh, they've fallen, they, they're down to 20-1 to one right now. Hmm, Interesting. I mean, if the Blazers are really trying to get the most assets, Utah's probably the team because they have all those draft picks from the Mitchell trade, the Gobert trade. And we know Danny Ainge is willing to make deals, but are they willing to trade some of those draft picks for an older Damian Lillard? I think that is a legitimate question to ask, but they're going for it. They've, they've acquired some people in the offseason. John Collins, they got him for nothing. If you get if you get Dame on that team, that's a team that's uh, flirting with the playoffs, and who knows what they can do in the West. The West is pretty tight right now. Remember when the Phil Mickelson story came out and what he was wagering, um, you know, on all that he wagered in like a year. It was like a, over a billion dollars that he wagered in in, uh, in his time betting. Um, I was thinking about that story because 
that doesn't mean that he put a billion dollar bet down. No. It it just means that he may have been winning, may have been losing, may have been, it may have been the same money wagered over and over and over again as it kind of moved back and forth. And he he uh, he he has come out and said that he obviously uh, has an issue there, or had an issue, or probably still does have an issue with wagering and gambling. But as that story was going, Stephen, I was thinking about you a little bit because you do tend to wager and. Give us an idea. Like, when you heard that and you saw a billion dollars, it just tells me that Phil Mickelson is probably making six-figure bets. That, you know, it's 100 k here, it's 250 there, it's 50000 here. And over time, that handle adds up and, and becomes a billion dollars. Am I, do I sound like an apologist for Phil Mickelson? No, I don't think so, because I, I think you're right on that. Like, it is a lot of money. Like, I would never say a billion dollars is not a lot of money, but... Um, at the same time, like he's probably not losing every bet, so he's still losing a lot of money. But at the same time, like yeah, if you're betting a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, I mean, think about it in college football or the NFL. Like one weekend, I mean, you could like up to you know what ten, fifteen games, and you could bet if you're betting a hundred G's on it, like that's gonna add up real quick. So then you look at like the Super Bowl and the you know, bowl games, college football playoff. He's probably betting even more on those. So. I mean, it adds up real quick. I, so the billion dollars, it is a lot, but I'm not going to say it's it's crazy amount for a guy like Phil Mickelson. Got an NFL preseason game tonight. Cleveland at Philadelphia. Philadelphia running the NFL these days. Uh, you got you got a feel on that one? I don't know. I uh, I have not. You know, I had the day <laughs> off yesterday, John. I didn't I didn't take that time to dig into the preseason matchups today. So that's part of, that's that's work for you. Yeah. You know, that's like yeah, I got to put it on my uh, handicapper gear right now it's an investment john i got it you know if i'm gonna make a play it's because i got value on it it's not because i'm just gonna do it uh you know just out of nowhere i gotta I got look up some stuff <laughs> i love it let's play some punch it audio we got great sound today we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the bald face truth headquarters Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Brett Yormark, Big 12 Conference Commissioner, new guy on the job. He's been on the job now almost a year. He's doing a victory tour, and he told the Sports Business Journal podcast that he reached out to Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov after the dismantling of the Pac-12 to tell him, hey, it's not personal. I'm sorry that my gain is your loss. Here's your mark. Punch it. I texted George, reached out to him, and effectively I said, hey, I'm sorry it came down to this. And I'm sorry I put you in a tough position, but this was something that you know, we, we, we had to do. And I'm sorry that my gain is your loss. And we had a very collegial conversation george was fantastic i didn't do it i didn't do you know expansion didn't happen in someone's shadow it didn't happen at night it wasn't a shock and all moment everyone knew the big 12 had an appetite to expand and um i i I'm, maybe some people in the industry didn't like that that i was so intentional about it but i'm very transparent in fact i telegraphed it um and i just felt that was the right way to do it versus other things that i witnessed and 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 observed in our industry over time where transparency really wasn't really the you know what happened i said months and months and months ago that brett yormark is a salesman 
You know, he's always selling, always closing. And and he's doing it there too. He's selling, 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 selling. And and you know, there's part of his act that I appreciate. I like that he put a stake in the ground. I like that he's advocating for his conference. I wish that George Kyofkov and the Pac twelve were a little more aggressive. In the end they were not. And your mark got a leg up on the conference. It but I think it always co- will come back to the fact that the Pac twelve presidents and chancellors had an opportunity to accept a deal from ESPN last October that would have locked the conference down and left the conference whole and left the 10 members proceeding together and they failed to do it it was a failure of leadership on a on a number of levels and maybe the big 12s near death after texas and oklahoma left left them in position where they were just far more equipped to be a little more ambitious a little more nimble so to speak yeah, and, and like, it's like you said, you know, if the Pac-12 made that deal back in October for $30 million, Brett Yormack can't come out and be saying these comments because he wouldn't be. But the fact that he said all these things, you know, from the get-go, once USC, UCLA left, he was out there being aggressive, saying the Big Ten or Big 12 is open for business. And then he capitalized and he, and he came through on those words. Like, you know what? He deserves to go out there and brag about it because he called it. He called a shot and he got it. Sam Acho talking about DJ Uyengalile. He has him as the number four transfer quarterback in the country. Number four. Punch it. Number four, going to go with DJ Uyangalale. Why DJU? Well, he had a 61% completion percentage last year, and sometimes all you need is a change of scenery. I was at Clemson's practice just a few days ago, and obviously they're excited about Kate Klubnik, but DJU was a starter when the season started. DJU looks like he'll be the starter. Everybody who's watching practices at Oregon State says he looks terrific. He looks every bit the starting quarterback. Be interesting to see that quarterback room. Meanwhile, in another corner of the Pac-12, Colin Wilson of the Action Network has been uh, pulling some coaches around the conference and asking them about Colorado. TCU, Colorado State, USC, Oregon. They all could put big numbers on Colorado's defense. Here's Wilson. Punch. I talked to 11 of the 12 coaches that are playing Deion Sanders this year, and all of them essentially said the same thing, that they want to kick his ass. And, and I'm, you know, you try to interpret that. And I look at these first few games on the schedule, the TCUs, the Colorado States, the Oregons, the USCs. If they want to put up 50, they could have 50 up by the third quarter, all of those teams. Well, Colorado State's offense is good enough to do that. It'll be really interesting to see how Colorado responds and whether or not Coach Prime will lose guys if he doesn't get results. I remember Jonathan Smith early in his first season. He was preaching the message, preaching the message, not getting the result, not getting the result. They went to Colorado in a late-season game and won. And I remember the wake of that game. It was such an affirming win for Jonathan Smith, even though he only went 2-10 and 10 that season. It was a little bit of evidence for the guys on the roster who had lost like eight straight games, even though that you know he was preaching, you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing, they weren't getting the result. It was a really affirming message. You have to let the horse get the carrot once in a while. Do you think that it could go almost the opposite of what that is and that maybe Colorado starts off so slow? And we even talked about the Colorado State game, how that's going to be tough. You know, They got a good coach, Mike Norvell. That offense could be – they could lose that game easily. But then you look at the end of their schedule. They got Stanford. They got Arizona. They got Washington State. And maybe by that time, 
all these transfers start clicking. The chemistry gets a little better. And Dion, for what he is, you know, he may not be the best of coach, but he's a great motivator. Could that Colorado team actually, by the end of the season, get it clicking like you said, with like Oregon State did, and they start playing well at the end of the season? Or is it one of those positions where if they start out 0-5, do you think it's more likely that team quits on Dion than actually pull together? I worry more about the latter, that that, that at 0-5 and, and an ugly 0-5, if TCU, if Colorado State, if Nebraska, if Oregon, if USC light them up, do they arrive in week six against Arizona State with um, problems, with people questioning whether Shadur Sanders should be the quarterback, a lot of finger pointing, um, you know, and then you go into, let's just unpack their schedule. You have Arizona State, but it's on the road. Kenny Dillingham will score points. I don't know if he'll be able to stop anybody. Colorado should be in that game, but I wouldn't necessarily pick Colorado to win it on the road. Stanford at home is probably a win. Then a bye week. Then it's UCLA. UCLA is going to kill them. You know, then it's Oregon State. Oregon State's going to kill them. Then it's Arizona. Arizona's good. You know, Arizona's going to be better. Jaden Delora, Arizona, they'll, they'll beat Colorado. Washington State and Utah. Where are the wins? I see Stanford and maybe the Nebraska game. And, and Colorado State. I know they're you – know, the look-ahead market has them 10, 10 point, 10 half point favorites over Colorado State. So that mm. should be a win. But like you said – We'll see. Uh, you know, Colin Wilson, he he's a he's a gambling guy, so he was talking about it also. He has them under three and a half wins, but he said that he thinks there's a chance that they could be better. Like if he had, if he had yeah. to make the bet, it would be under, but he doesn't like – he doesn't like the under for sure and that they could be four and eight and it would still, yeah. still be a great season. Something he said jumped out at me, though. I want, I want to stop him right when he says this. I talked to 11 of the 12 coaches that are playing – Deion Sanders this year. Talk to 11 of the 12 coaches that will play Colorado. Is I know Kyle Whittingham. He's not going to talk about this. And I know Jonathan Smith. He's not going to talk about this. Maybe he talked to people on the coaching staff. But I, I don't think he talked to 11 of the 12 head coaches. Blowing smoke? I, I, would, I would just be surprised that, you know Jonathan Smith. He's not going to no. come out and tell anybody Hey, we're we're itching to play them. We're going to kick their ass. He's not going to say that. Somebody on the staff may say it. And we Kyle we Whittingham's heard, never going to say that. We heard what Dane Lanning thought of Colorado. He, he doesn't even know who they are. What if they won? We don't Chip care about Kelly? Them. Chip Kelly going to say that? Like I, we know the coaches in this conference. They're not stupid. You know, yeah. Troy Taylor at Stanford's not saying that. I just I I don't know. Maybe he's talked. I would buy because I, I do know this. Like I'll say this. I do know. That assistant coaches at Utah don't like what Colorado's doing, and I think they're itching to play them. And I do know, I think we, I think Dan Lanning's on the record, okay. But Jonathan Smith's never going to say that. So I, it would have to be. I don't want to call. I don't. I don't know the guy, so I don't want to say that his reporting's bad or whatnot. But that jumped out at me when he said I talked to eleven of the twelve coaches, and I was like, well, wait a minute, because I know two that for sure won't say wouldn't say anything. I mean, do you think that there is some truth to it, though, that some yes. of these coaches yes. do want to dominate the Colorado? I, yeah, I think the sentiment is 100% accurate. because, And that's where I, I will give him a wide berth, because I think if you, you know, I think assistant coaches at Utah, assistant coaches at Oregon State, if you put them under lie detector, I think every other team in the Pac-12 is sick of hearing about Coach Prime, was sick about it when he got to the conference. I had one head coach call me. After I wrote a column about Coach Prime and it's already a win for Colorado, I had a coach call me and say, are you buying that? Really? He's just hired an offensive head coach and a defensive head coach. It's a lot of talk in between there, and they're going to get killed. <laughs> so 
uh, I think there's there's some bad feelings. I think it'll be interesting to see it play out. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. I think it'll be really interesting. Scott Burns, Oregon State Athletic Director. You know, we talked about the challenging road at Oregon State during his time. It's been tough. He had a he had a football coach in Gary Anderson who quit on him five games into a season. Now uh, he had a he had a heart incident. Now he's got no home really beyond this 2023 college football season. Oregon State looking for some footing. Here's Scott Barnes. Punch it. It's been it's been a tough one, and we've had tough ones before. I, Jonathan and I were sitting on my back deck having a cold beverage the other night, talking about that first year together, and and we were we were dealt a really bad deck of cards. My my football coach walked off the job five games in, and uh, we're maybe the worst program if you remember in, in all of college football and. Uh, we found a way forward, and and we will we will find a way forward again. They will find a way forward. Well, they're waiting for Stanford and Cal, and uh, to try to figure out if the way forward is going to include the Cardinal, and uh, and uh, and Cal along with them. But uh, I think as you uh, examine the path that's in front of Oregon State. Does it feel a little bit Pollyanna, a little bit, to say Oregon State is used to this kind of fight? Or if you've been paying attention, is this the most Oregon State thing ever? And bear with me here. Oregon State has got its back against the wall. This is a university that played as a 12 seed in the NCAA tournament in 2021, went to the lead eight. Started in the loser's bracket of the College World Series in 2018 and won the whole damn thing. Hired its women's basketball coach, Scott Ruick, at a Burgerville. Six years later, he took him to a Final Four. Down 17 in the fourth quarter against Oregon. Last year in the football game. Win the Civil War. I'm just saying, like, this is on brand for Oregon State. And I don't, I don't mean to say they're the little engine that could or couldn't or all that. You know, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. I mean, this is just a, a university. When I pulled into the parking lot the very first time I was covering an Oregon State home football game, and I looked at the people who were in the parking lot, and I saw the way that the football team played, and I looked at the facility, and I thought, these guys are grinders. It felt Midwestern to me. I had, I had covered the Big Ten Conference. It felt like Purdue to me. And, I, you know, it was different than Autzen Stadium and, the, and what the Ducks were doing. It's not a billboard in New York City. It's a, it's a scrap. And that's kind of what Oregon State signs up for every year. It's definitely par for the course, John, but do you do you question this year because there are expectations and they're not going to sneak up on anybody. It's kind of a different role for the Beavers, for the football team, does that affect this season at all, or is it one of those things where Jonathan Smith is so good that he's going to get this team through any type of situation? He's been really quiet. He's been really quiet all off season. I found that I have had less contact with Jonathan Smith this off season than any of other time in his head coaching career. He is. Um, I told him on media day. I said, "You've been ghosting me. You've been freezing me out." And he's like, "No, no, no." I think he's. I think he's very focused in a different way. I think. There's a step up that he's trying to take here. And I think he's cut some of the fat out of, you know, things that he used to do before. But here's the thing with Oregon State season. They'll start on that Sunday game in week one. 
and they will start what could be their last season as a Power 5 conference member. Think about that. And they're going to be a pretty good team. They might be a 10-plus win team that competes for a conference championship in their last year as a Power 5 conference. And I don't take that lightly, but San Jose State in Week 1, UC Davis in Week 2, San Diego State in Week 3, Washington State in Week 4. I have them 4-0. We find out in Week 5. That's the game. That's a revealing game to me. They play Utah at home. Two weeks later, UCLA at home. Week 12, Washington at home. Their tough games are all home games, except the Civil War, which is in week 13, Black Friday. So it lines up nicely for them in a lot of ways. One loss at Research Stadium in the last two seasons. Yeah, they, they and the loss was to USC, 17-14, in a game they probably should have won. If you play quarterback, they win the game. Dan Orlovsky. <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah. thank you. Dan, I, I'll, I'll take it. Take the sack. Chance. Take the sack. Uh, Dan Orlovsky talking about the Niners. He's picking them to go to the Super Bowl, and he thinks Sam Darnold and or Brock Purdy, either one can do it. Here's Orlovsky. Punch it. I think Brock Purdy and or Sam Darnold can take them to the Super Bowl, if I'm being dead Sam honest. Sam Darnold. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Sam Darnold is a incredibly talented he's the most talented quarterback they have in the roster throwing ball wise so um great defense we all know that weaponry Kyle Shanahan um I think the thing that changed for their offense a little bit with Brock Purdy post Jimmy Garoppolo was the little bit of the creativity a little bit of I don't have to call the perfect play for this young man because he's going to be able to either make the right choice or do something if it's not ideal like Kyle was as a play caller I don't want to say burdened, but it felt if the if the play call wasn't ideal in that situation with Jimmy, it wasn't going to work out well. Niners are a contender. Coming up in the next segment, I'll talk about that. I think you can see the clear contenders in the NFL. I'll name them. Steven, you'll tell me if I'm crazy. That's still ahead. I want to draw a distinction between betting favorites and betting action. For example, the favorites to reach the Super Bowl in the NFC are the Philadelphia Eagles and the San Francisco 49ers. They have the best odds. However, a different team is drawing more betting action to win the NFC West that is not the 49ers. The Seattle Seahawks are getting a bunch of action to win. And, uh, by the way... Um, I think it might be uh, the over/under on the Seahawks win total for the season is only eight and a half, and the Seahawks are five to one. They st- opened at five to one to win the West. Now they're down to uh, two to one, about plus one ninety-five or two to one. Uh, the Niners are minus one sixty-five to win the NFC West. Um, so, Stephen, help our listeners understand: like the money's flowing on the Seahawks because the odds are better, and people are going, "Hey, that's not a bad bet." Yeah, and the fact, you know, if you're just betting $10, you're going to be getting $19 back for a Seahawks bet, where if you bet the 49ers, you're going to be getting, you know, 5 $6. And so it's, it's you know, it's a lot to pay to get not a lot of money back when you're paying the minus 165. So a lot more people are going to be betting on the Seahawks just because that way you can kind of justify it yourself, say, hey, you know what, I bet this money and the Seahawks actually do it, then I actually win a decent amount of money rather than, you know, win less than what I actually bet. In the NBA, there have been some years where we say, hey, there's only like two or three teams that could get 
to the NBA Finals and actually win it. Like, I think Adam Silver's league has done uh, a remarkable job of improving that because there seems to be more parity. And especially entering this season, I think there's going to be some bigger questions about who wins the NBA. The NFL is, um, is king of this. They make a lot of teams feel like they have a chance. And I believe that there are nine teams. I'm going to draw the line at nine teams that I could see in the Super Bowl and possibly winning the Super Bowl. And that's, that's what the NFL does. And, it's, and they do a great job of it because if you are uh, a fan in a middling market in the NFL, you know, you're a Dolphins fan or you're a Lions fan, you don't totally think you're out of this, even though you probably know down deep you're not winning the Super Bowl when the season starts. But you don't, like, there's probably some sports radio in Detroit and Miami where they're dealing with, you know, who's going to stop us? Uh I'm going to give the teams that I think can make the Super Bowl and win it. Steven, you tell me if I'm drawing the line in the right area. All right, let's do it. I think there are some no-brainers, and I'm going to say that there are five no-brainers that could easily get to the Super Bowl. I would not be surprised if they won it. And it starts with the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles, of course. Buffalo after them, that's three. The Super Niners, the 49ers, four. And I'm going to include the Cincinnati Bengals at five. To me, that's the top tier in the in the NFL. And probably not a surprise for people who watched the playoffs last year. But I think there's a line of delineation after those five that becomes the next group that I think has a chance. And I think there are four teams left in that group. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, four teams. Four teams left. So I think there's nine total teams and I would be surprised if anybody but these nine won it. So there's five. The next group in my mind is the New York Jets, the Dallas Cowboys, the Baltimore Ravens, and the Chargers. And I put I and I hesitate to put the Chargers in there because they have some problems. But I'm going to put them in there because they've got Justin Herbert. They've got the piece that is necessary, and I think he could help them overcome some things. Now, I'm not saying that these are the best bets in the NFL. I actually think the Ravens are an interesting bet because if Lamar Jackson and the Ravens put it together, I think they are a team that could get to the Super Bowl and they they could be a problem and they could be a team at like 18 to 20 to 1 that could win it. But those are the nine teams. Kansas City, Philadelphia, Buffalo, San Francisco, Cincinnati in the top tier. Then Dallas, the New York Jets, Baltimore, and the Chargers. I don't see anybody else getting there, Stephen. Is there anybody else that should be in this conversation? I would say, what do you think about the Miami Dolphins? And I know Tua was hurt last season, but when Tua was healthy, he was he had the best quarterback rate in the NFL. And that defense is solid. The Obviously, the weapons they have with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell is really good. They got in some running backs this year. I think if Tua stays healthy, which is a tough if, but I think you talk about the guy in Justin Herbert, I think Tua could be that guy as long as he stays healthy. I would say the Dolphins, if luck if they get very lucky, they would they could be in that category. And I would almost take out the Cowboys. And it's the same thing with Dak Prescott. Mm-hmm. I'm just not a Dak believer. Um, I think the defense got a little uh, worse this season. And same with the offense. I think the offense just isn't quite good enough. So I would take Dallas out and put Miami in. So that's where I would argue. I see the argument you're making. But the AFC East, you've got Buffalo and the Jets, in my mind, that are just better. And I think that's, that's four games there that Miami's got to overcome. 
in order to get you know p- playoff position to get home field advantage. That's where I I kind of look at them and I go uh, tougher road there for them. Um, I you know so I get you're your, fully buying yeah. you're fully buying the Jets then huh? You, you yeah. think Aaron Rodgers last season? He, I don't think Aaron Rodgers is very good last season. Was it just the think... Packers or is it now he coming to the Jets? Better? I just I just I've watched Aaron Rodgers and we've all watched Aaron Rodgers for years. I I think he's weird. He's a weirdo. I but I also look at him and I go you know he played without a run game. He played without receivers. He makes all of that not matter. And the Jets appear to have put some pieces around him. And now they add Dalvin Cook to the equation. And I'm going, the soup here is not bad. Like, you know, do, am I picking them to win? No, I think, you know, they've got problems because they've got the Chiefs, they've got the Bills, and they've got the Bengals, who I think are better, all better. But Aaron Rodgers, could he knock one of those teams out? He could, I think. And, and Baltimore's good, too. I think Baltimore's going to be really interesting. I think they're right in that conversation. But the, let's talk about that top tier for a minute. Chiefs, Eagles, Bills, Niners, Bengals. Am I reading that right? Yes. The, the interesting thing is you, you mentioned nine teams, John, and uh, I'm counting them up here. I got six of them from the AFC. Six of the nine are from the AFC, only three in the NFC. I think you're right. Like when I mentioned the Dolphins, maybe it is a little too crazy, but I, the AFC is loaded. I think that that is going to be a problem. And one of these teams, probably one of the six teams, John, that you say could win the Super Bowl may not even make the playoffs. Like that's how right. good this this conference is. Yeah, and I I think in the NFC it's the Eagles, it's the Niners. If we want to say there's a, I think there's a big gap between those two teams, and the Cowboys, and then beyond that, I you know I don't have a contender. So I um, you're not you know, you're not taking the Lions or the Seahawks. Nah, they, they're kind of little dark horse picks. Not yet. I think look, we're talking about winning the Super Bowl. We're not talking about you know participation in the playoffs. If we're talking about participation in the playoffs. I think another interesting team could be the Jaguars, Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars. They're interesting to me, and, but again, there's a lot of there's a lot of road in front of them and a lot of traffic in front of them, and I, and I just you know I can't see them getting through that cleanly. So I just think those are the contenders and those are the teams. Now, the Kansas City Chiefs obviously have Patrick Mahomes. They obviously have a lot of experience. Um, uh, just love the way they play. They're well coached. You know. The Eagles, we've seen teams all the time who get there and then they don't win. Atlanta comes to mind in the Super Bowl that they had the 28-3 to lead and then they have a real difficult time in the wake of that kind of regrouping. I don't actually expect that to hurt like the Eagles and Jalen Hurts and because of the way they play. I think that they'll be fine. They'll be immune to that. Defensively, they're still going to be a team that is a defensive force. I think offensively, um, you know, they'll do... You know, it wasn't like, you know, coming back this season, they're going to have a bunch of problems with a bunch of guys that are fighting for contracts. And I think Jalen Hurts, if he stays healthy, again, he had a shoulder thing last season that they where they weren't the same without him. But I think the Eagles are pencil them lightly into the NFC title game. And I got the Niners in there against them. And, and can the 49ers bring a more complete effort in this kind of championship game? That's the big question. Does it matter for the Niners who the quarterback is? I do. I disagree with Orlovsky, who said either Sam Darnold or Brock Purdy. I'm not. I haven't seen enough of Darnold, and and maybe like maybe, maybe he's right. Like maybe I'm I'm overestimating Brock Purdy, but the Niners, Jimmy Garoppolo, you know maybe I'm making Orlovsky's argument here. We have seen worse quarterbacks take teams that are similar to the Niners. Trent Dilfer with the Ravens, 
Jeff Hostetler with the Giants or Phil Simms with the Giants back in the day. We've seen sort of the journeyman quarterback who's just okay. Jim McMahon with the uh, 85 Chicago Bears, you know, just okay, good, not great, just okay, opportunistic. We've seen those guys take teams to the Super Bowl and win it. So, you know, Garoppolo, is is Darnold better than Garoppolo? I don't know. I don't. I haven't seen enough of him. But I know who Brock Purdy is, and I, I kind of think that it's Brock Purdy or bust, but I like the fact that, you know, the, the fact that the Niners brought Sam Darnold into the equation I think says more about Trey Lance than it does Brock Purdy. I think they're going, we need to know that we get into the NFC Championship game again and the Philadelphia Eagles knock out our starting quarterback, that we've got somebody that we can put in there that can, you know, complete a pass and and help win a game. Like, I, I actually think the Niners, had they stayed healthy, that was going to be a hell of a game in that NFC Championship game. But that credit to Philadelphia. That's what they did all year. They were the best front seven in the NFL last season. They gave people all kinds of problems. And the only guy that really exploited them was, you know, the freak that is Patrick Mahomes, who it, make, just makes plays. Is there any concern with you with the 49ers, D'Amico Ryan's leaving to be the Texans head coach, and Nick Bosa still you know, looking for that contract extension? Is there any concern that the defense regresses a little bit from what it was a season ago? I, I felt that way when Robert Sala left and went to the Jets. Like, I wondered, you know, were they losing the uh, the chef on the defensive side? I just think they have great defensive players. And, you know, it's kind of the way the roster was built. John Lynch, give him credit, Stanford guy, GM, defensive-minded, defensive player when he was a player. They, they built this team to play great defense, to rely upon, uh, you know, Kyle Shanahan's offense, but... A lot of they when they're most effective they're running the football and they're just possessing the ball and I found it really interesting we had Jack Coletto the Oregon State running back on this show last year often and at one point Coletto confessed that Jonathan Smith at Oregon State was giving his players iPads that were loaded with 49ers plays it was a lot of the run and pass scheme that Kyle Shanahan runs and I got to thinking about that you know in the off season it crossed my mind more than once that the construction of Oregon State football in the last couple of years and the construction of the Niners roster, very similar in that they built defense and the run game. They're looking for a quarterback who's, you know, tell me if there are not parallels between the Niners bringing in Sam Darnold and the Beavers bringing in DJ Uingalele. Like, it's just kind of like, you know, Trey Lance is Aiden Childs. And, uh, you know, Brock Purdy is Ben Gulbranson. Like, it's there's an interesting parallel that the Niners and the Oregon State Beavers have in sort of the construction of who they are. And Jack Coletto said it out loud. Like, you know, we all suspected that Oregon State was running some of the play action and the run and, you know, the, the way they run the ball and the scheme they have and, and their passing game, that it was very similar. There's no Debo Samuels on Oregon State's roster. Uh, there's no George Kittle, but they do emphasize the tight end position. But I just find it really interesting that there are some parallels there between how they constructed those teams and kind of the fact that you know they're they're doing they're both doing it without great quarterback play. You tell me what is Sam Darnold going to be if they handed him the keys? If Brock Purdy's not ready, what can Sam Darnold be? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not the biggest Sam Darnold guy. I never was, even when he was at USC. I think he, I think he struggles. I just don't know that he's a great NFL quarterback. But Kyle Shanahan is basically the quarterback of that system. 
And so I do think he'll be successful because they'll put him in the right spots and, you know, they'll be able to run the football and they'll play defense and they'll be very much smash mouth. I, I just don't think Sam Darnold's going to win you any games. Now, can Kyle Shanahan coach him up and coach the offense up to win a Super Bowl? Probably, yeah. But I don't think Sam Darnold's going to go out and win games where I think Brock Purdy, he showed a little bit last season where he can make some plays, you know, when it's off script and when things break down, he can scramble out of the pocket and make a throw downfield. I do think. You know, potential-wise, Brock Purdy has much more potential than Sam Darnold because he can make plays down the field, out of the pocket, and he can actually maybe win you a game. But right now, we still don't know because he's so, still so new and still so fresh that so we we don't have the whole book on him. So he could be actually worse. I, I, I think they need to upgrade at that position, but it maybe Brock Purdy's the guy. But at the same yeah. time, if, if it's Sam Darnold's the starting quarterback, John, I don't think they can win a Super Bowl. Like, I just don't think that. I don't have enough trust in him. I think it has to be Brock Purdy, and, if, and it has to be Brock Purdy turning out well to win that uh, Super Bowl. Here's something to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, Kyle Shanahan said last week he wanted to see Trey Lance as a starter against the Raiders, okay? Um, they went, he, they, you know, they go three and out uh, in the first three possessions. He gets sacked four times. I, I just thought, even though his numbers statistically, he was, tw- he was 10 of 15 for 112 yards and a touchdown, you know, you look at that and you go, okay, pretty good. I just didn't like him as, as a starter. I didn't like the decisions he was making. Darnold's probably going to get the start this week against the Broncos. They play Saturday. Keep an eye on that. I think that could be an interesting peek into what Sam Darnold can be. And and look, we we bag on preseason a lot. This is one of the valuable things that preseason brings you. And and it's why I keep, you know, I've asked Jonathan Smith about having a preseason in college football. Like would they ever conceive of that? And it would be I think it would be great. Like hey, they're they're playing Southern Utah this week in a preseason game, and we're going to get to see Aiden Childs start a game that doesn't count. Like, that would be a huge advantage for Oregon State. You get to see DJ start a game. Hey, they're going to play Portland State this week. Like, but you don't have a preseason in college football. The lights go on, and you better be ready. And it's a big difference between, obviously, the NFL and college football. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Anna's in the studio. Anna's in the studio. I don't say that as a warning, it sounds like a warning. How you doing? It feels like when you call a friend <laughs> or when a friend calls you yeah, or your spouse or yeah. something and you're in the car and the first thing out of your mouth is, you're on speakerphone, right. which is code for kids are in the car, right. don't drop an F-bomb, <laughs> clean up your act, don't say anything dirty. Have you ever done that? Have you ever violated oh, that? All the time. It's why it's why I do it now religiously because I'm like, and I have friends. I have one friend in particular that I gotta really be on alert. If I'm taking her oh, call, really? if I'm taking her call and she's I've got the filthy. kids, she's just filthy. Do you want to name who that person is? <laughs> no, she knows who she yeah. is. Can I uh, can I tell you something <laughs> that happened with one of your friends uh, over the weekend? Was it the same friend? I don't know, but Probably. I was at. Uh, I got. St- I don't, don't want to say I got stuck. I got <laughs> assigned. The duty, Stephen, has this ever happened to you? I got assigned the duty of taking the kids to a birthday party of one of their friends. Ever happened to you? Uh, yeah, happens to me all the Solo. time. Yeah. Solo. Solo. Solo? So you yes. got no wingman there. And all the other parents mostly were moms. There was a couple dads, but yeah. it, it was kind of Anna's crew. Yeah, I had to do that. Uh, my oldest son went to like a, almost, it was like a, it was a girl's birthday party at like a gymnastics place. 
<laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so like a little yeah. That's place. your jam. It That's was my jam, jam. Yeah. Steven. So it was yeah. me and a bunch of moms there. Uh-huh, yeah. It was just uh, talking about school lunchbox options and oh, stuff. Oh yeah, first, you know? first question of every mom was, "Where's Anna?" <laughs> Which really makes you feel welcome when that happens, <laughs> you know. But I was like, "Oh yeah, she's with her mom. They're doing, you know, a spa weekend or whatever you guys were doing. Yeah, uh, facials or whatever." Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, it was uh, interesting to me. They had bouncy houses at the party. Yeah, and one of the bouncy houses because it was hot had a hose attached to it. Yeah. And so they were spraying water on a slide. It was pretty cool looking. Like, it was a great idea for a birthday party. Yeah. Yeah, like, four bouncy houses in, like, somebody's backyard. Uh-huh. One of them had a hose that was squirting. It was a water slide. So the kids had to go into the bouncy house, climb up the ladder. I was jealous that I didn't get to do it. I was watching the kids go up the ladder, slide down. Yeah, they were coming this, down. Was, this was a heck of it a party. It was pretty This is like a Kardashian-level party. Only thing that was missing yeah. was like a balloon arch. And know? it was being held at the grandpa and grandma's house. Yeah, incredible. So hosts. there were no rules, right? <laughs> so it was like, hey, do whatever. Right. So lo and behold, I'm just observing. I'm watching the Splash House because our kids were in it and sliding down the slide. And I thought, well, if something goes wrong, I want to be nearby. And all of a sudden, the hose came detached from the top of the slide. And it was kind of a tricky setup in that it was a garden hose, I guess, that was going up to the top of this giant bouncy house that had a slide. And the garden hose had to go into this other thing. (laughs) And it had a clip that went around it. And it didn't just screw in. It needed this, it needed like a Phillips screwdriver to screw the clip in. And I only realized that because I watched the birthday boy, who was turning, I think, eight, Mm -hmm. try to do this with several failed attempts. And I was like, he can't quite get it. Yeah. Now, the problem was. Not enough manual dexterity. Yeah, he's eight. I was thought, you think you're such a big shot, you can't fix the hose thing? You know, you're eight. Come on. Um, But his grandpa was there, and grandpa was not going to be able to go up the slide. Yeah, he probably could have. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't think He's Grandpa. No, Grandpa well, he just was had, just have shoulder surgery. Grandpa was talking about getting a ladder out, Ooh, and I'm not yeah, sure yeah. it was ladder was going to be the do the trick because right. the actual place that the hose attached was more on the bouncy house. Yeah. So this is going to require somebody getting up there. So your friend, mother of the birthday boy, tries to go up the slide, <laughs> the water slide, in her adult clothes. <laughs> And I don't mean she was dressed like a naughty nurse. I mean she was wearing her normal, normal adult clothes, clothes, like okay. jeans, yes. a nice shirt. You know, she was she was dressed for the occasion. Yeah. So I'm kind of watching her, and I'm thinking it's slippery. I don't know if she can do this. And she kind of manages to get up the slide. Like she actually walked up the slide yeah. and got to the point where she had the hose in her hand and she was trying to attach it. Oh, my gosh. And at that very moment, I should have pulled my phone out to record this. Should've. You know what happened? What happened? She slipped. <laughs> she face-planted and then slid down the slide. <laughs> like, you know, all the way down. Like PD style? Yeah. Wow. Basically backwards. And feet first facing the slide. Oh, oh, oh. That yeah. Way. Fell and okay. went down that way. Wow. And she popped up like... Who saw this? And I just told her, I said, nobody saw it. Don't worry. Nobody Except saw this. Except for the and, one person yeah. she least The one person that would go and talk on radio about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that happened. 
Oh, man. And I was kind of laughing, but not, because I, I was like, you know what, as long as she's okay. My first thought was, is she hurt? But did she fix it then? No, she okay. didn't fix it. It was still going to be a problem. The kids were not going to be able to slide. And so you know what I did. I I, uh, I climbed up the slide from the inside of the bouncy house. Now, what a guy. The grandpa told me, he warned me, <laughs> he said, you're not going to fit, John, which I took offense to, <laughs> because clearly, like... It was still a bouncy house. It wasn't like there wasn't a sign on it that said no adults on the bouncy house. So he was basically saying I was too big to get through the little contraption and get up the slide. And so I I took that personally. So I got into the bouncy house, encountered our children in the bouncy house, by the way. Uh They were like, Dad. Like, so the children proceed to bounce. Oh yeah, they're bouncing around in the there. The water slide is not. Yeah, they were jumping around in the bouncy house, so it was like a bunch of gumballs like flying around, yeah. and the you know the kids were just bouncing. Okay. So I told everybody, hey, everybody, calm down. I'm here to fix this. It's under control. Okay. So I climb up the slide. Uh-huh. I get to the top of the slide, and I hook my leg around kind of the top of the slide like I'm doing an MMA move. Yeah. Like a Brazilian uh-huh. jiu-jitsu hold. Yeah. I can and visualize so that. And so my leg is holding me there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I summoned the grandpa. I said, give me a Phillips screwdriver. He does. I was like a surgeon at that point. Screwdriver. Yeah. He handed it over. Yeah. Hose. He handed it over. Mm-hmm. Collar. He handed it over. And I proceeded to fix the thing. Then went down the slide and prayed as he turned on the water and it was fixed. Now, I expected a large cheer from the children. Yeah. I didn't get it. No. I expected some kind of cheer from the parents. I didn't no. really get that either. Mm-mm. So in my mind, maybe I wasn't. You know, I wasn't doing what I thought no, I was going to do. No, you did the right thing. I'm glad you stepped in and did that. Because there's nothing that's more annoying. You know, we've all been to these birthday parties when you watch parents struggle with different things. Whether it's, you know, the pizzas haven't showed up or you need more hands to pass out the cake kind of thing. And I'm always amazed at everyone else who just kind of stands around. Bystanders. Bystanders? That are watching you like sweat bullets because you're trying to make it happen for your kid. And they don't jump in. And it's like, have you never thrown a birthday party? Yeah, but part of the problem, Anna, is is parents today. (laughs) Yeah. We're we're doing we're ruining this. We're going overboard on these birthday parties. Well, that is true. We're guilty of it too. We're taking people to a gravity park. You know, we're putting bouncy houses up in the backyard. It's not just one. There's four. Yeah. We're like when I was a kid. My parents got me a cake. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. A cake. You pulled out the when I was a kid line. Everybody come over. How We're having times, a cake. How many times a week does he pull out the when I was a kid hey, line? But I'm she, just saying, I think, we're, I think we're going overboard. We're like, we're bringing in actors. You know, Ariel. Here's Ariel. You know, it's some kid who's dressed up like Ariel, got a mermaid outfit you on. Who's, the, I asked our kids today, I said, what are your first memories from like your life? Like what do you what is the first thing you remember? And our 9-year-old was like, "I remember Ariel coming to my second birthday." But party. I think it's wrong. I think it's really wrong. She should have no memory of that. Like I think we we're ruining our kids. No, it affirmed for me the money so, that we spent. So what, what expectations is that set for the rest of her life though? Hmm. I don't know. 5 at 5 is coming up. Plus we'll get a visit from uh, Puck at KJR in Seattle. Jason Puckett will be joining us to talk about where Washington State's mind is. A cameo by Sabrina Inescu in the 5 at 5. Leave it here. We had a big crisis in the house today as uh, the two younger daughters went to get their hair cut and uh, of course one of them did not like the hairstyle. I mean, you know, it's one of the perils of having three daughters is when they go to get their hair cut 
And it got me thinking. Like one of the one of the things that uh, one of the other daughters said to make the daughter who didn't like her haircut feel better was look at dad. Like you know, always look at dad. The, the name of the show is the bald face truth. People ask me too, when did I start shaving my head? Well, I think some of it has to do with Mother Nature. Like so, you know, if, if I let it grow out now, who knows what this what this thing would look like? But uh, I do. I shave it, and I do kind of a Robert Sala kind of thing, Kojak, uh, Vin Diesel. I don't know what you want to call it. Maybe it's just my own thing. But the first time I ever shaved my head, my mother cried. I remember I was in high school. I was a high school football player, and I had a teammate who had cut a, cut himself a mohawk. Uh, Brian Bosworth was a, kind of a big deal at the time, the Oklahoma linebacker. And so I had this teammate named Bob who... Uh, who brought his razor to practice uh, during uh, double day camp during uh, my senior year of high school. And uh, I thought it would be a good idea. You know, I had a good head of hair. It was bothering me. It's a hot summer day. It's probably 105 degrees. We're practicing. And I was like, you know what? Just Why don't we just shave it off? Just shave it all the way off. And I remember coming home and walking in and my poor mother burst into tears she wanted to know what happened. What happened is I just decided to cut my hair. And look at me now. It's become the brand of the radio show. So you never know. But, um, you know, the haircut that my two kids have, they they were almost identical length. But it was one of those things. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things when people will ask me what it's like to have three daughters. Um, I think it's great. I, I love to say that I specialize. And um, I think I'm a better dad with each experience. Like, that makes sense, right, that you get better. Anybody who has done things for a, a period of time knows you get better. But I always look at people who, when I, you know, I'll occasionally you look across a restaurant and I'll see a family that has like three boys. And I'll be like, what is that like? What is that circus like? But, um, you know, I grew up kind of in a blend. Like there were four kids in my family, two boys, two girls. So it was, it was a nice balance between the drama and whatever else was going on with uh, the, the various kids at different ages. And I think there actually has to do more... Sometimes it has to do more with their age than it has to do with their gender and kind of just what they're going through. And I cannot imagine who, if social media creating even the pressure, the pressures that young kids have today. To, well, my friends are playing Roblox. Well, I don't care what your friends are doing. This is what we're doing in our household. Well, and, and even with my older daughter who kind of grew up in that Instagram world as people were ex, uh, exploring and understanding social media. And we were certainly trying to keep pace with all of that stuff. Anyway. I digress. Uh, we have had a great show today. We have coming up uh, a great interview with Jason Puckett at KJR. He will be with us this hour to kind of give a Washington State perspective on what the heck is going on. We heard from Scott Barnes, the Oregon State AD, on yesterday's show. I thought he was really inspired. I thought he was uh, outspoken. I thought it was a strong interview from Barnes. But also, you know, look, it's all rooted. It was always rooted in the idea of that Stanford and Cal could do whatever they were going to do, right? I mean, they're... Their total plan A hinged on, hey, who else is in the room with us? And, you know, that just seems to be what uh, the flavor is or what the atmosphere and culture is right now in major college athletics. But I certainly think the interview we did with Chris Hill, the Utah former Utah AD, earlier in the show was fantastic. And I will not be surprised if it makes people think. He's calling upon the presidents, the university presidents, to examine the idea that Maybe they haven't thought enough about the non-revenue generating sports. We'll not be surprised to see some of these coaches speak out. They should be writing op-eds. They should be speaking out. You know, you know why don't they? Well, Chris Hill said it. The, you know, you, you don't 
defy your athletic director. And if you're an athletic director, you don't defy your university president. And if you're a university president, you're worried about the trustees. And it's uh, the layers of management that become a big problem. Anna's popped into the studio. We're going to do the five at five. And what's, uh, what's on tap for today? Well, here it is. The five at five. Anna, the number one story as you see it. The Knight Commission releasing a statement uh, given what has happened to the Pac-12 conference and some pretty strong language in their statement. They're saying that this should be the final tipping point forcing university presidents, calling out the presidents, to explain why the current structure is still in the best interests of all Division I college athletes in all sports. So they're trying to say that basically, you know, we should be adopting their proposal from a few years ago where they suggested an overhauled structure that would be better for athletes in all sports and improve governance. And they're calling for the creation of a new governing structure solely for the sport of FBS football with the NCAA continuing to govern all other sports. What do you think about that? I think like the Knight Commission is interesting because the Power 5 conference schools generally do not uh, join that conversation because they view that as a threat to disrupt the monopoly that they currently hold, in, especially in football. But this is a great idea, and it kind of steals a page from what we were talking about earlier in the show with Chris Hill, former athletic director at Utah, and, and Chip Kelly, the UCLA coach, that football is different than the other sports. Football is causing problems for the other sports. Football needs to break away from the other sports. We all know it. The problem being that the media rights money that's attached to football is funding the other sports. Are are some of these universities going to go back to their conferences uh, and say, look, we'll give three or five million dollars back of our media rights distribution, but we want our non-revenue generating sports to compete in another conference. Uh, you know, we'll give some money back. You know, they're probably not likely going to do that. But the Knight Commission and a whole bunch of other people who are smart are are saying stuff like that. I think um, you know this is this is a good suggestion. It uh, dovetails nicely with what we've been talking about on today's show. The number two story. Blazers have released their uh, schedule for the season, and it comes with a twist. You've probably heard a little bit about this, but to begin with, they'll start their regular season on October 25th against the Clippers. They'll start it on the road. Uh, Their first game at home will be at the Moda Center October 27th against Orlando. But this inaugural in-season tournament is what caught my eye. This thing will tip off Friday, November 3rd. It will end on December 9th in Las Vegas. So this will consist of two stages, group play and knockout rounds. Each team will play four designated group play games on tournament nights where the Blazers will face Memphis at home on November 3rd. Uh, They'll face LeBron and the Lakers at the Moda Center on the 17th of November. And then eight teams per conference will advance to the knockout rounds. Well, I look at the pool that the Blazers are. They're in the West Group A. It includes Memphis, Phoenix, the Lakers, Utah, and the Blazers. Not a favorable draw for the Blazers. This uh, feels a little bit like uh, our U.S. Women's National Team trying to get out of pool play. But uh, it's an interesting tournament format. It involves Vegas. You're going to get buy-in from the players. Also, for the teams that get eliminated, they're going to give you a home-and-home game with another team that got eliminated. It's uh, it's a wrinkle to the schedule. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm going to love it or hate it, 
but I'm going to give it a chance. Uh, and I think, you know, Adam Silver in the NBA, obviously drawing a page from some of the other sports, internationally and otherwise, that have midseason tournaments. There's more TV money involved in it, and it creates uh, a little more urgency at a time of the season where some teams tend to be throttling down. So, um, you know, I, I like what they're trying to do here. The the bigger question is, will Damian Lillard, how many of those Blazer games in that schedule that they released today, how many will he play in a Blazers uniform? Will he be there for minute one? Will he be in a Blazers uniform minute one, game one? To be determined. The number three story, Anna, as you see it. Weird situation involving Sabrina Ionescu. She's saying she wants her insoles back. Former Duck uh, Sabrina and, of course, now New York Liberty star, shared today on Twitter uh, that, well, it's X, right? But uh, I'm still going to be calling it Twitter for a while. She's saying that her signature Sabrina One sneakers were stolen at an opposing team's arena. She doesn't specify what arena it was, but she posted pictures of the shoes. And she said, never thought I would get my shoes stolen from an opposing arena. Please just bring me my insoles back. First of all, these are nice shoes. And uh, first, the other thing I thought about was this is not bad marketing for you know her debut signature Oregon Ducks shoe, uh, paying tribute to the Ducks, came out as uh, the Liberty uh, were, were busy playing. But um, she's still an Oregon Duck at heart, so to speak. But, um, you know, she, is, she debuted them on the court, and now they're missing. And I find it interesting that what she wants back are the insoles not necessarily the shoes. You and I were talking about this, that, you know, you're in an opposing arena, um, and you have um, you have cameras everywhere. You have security everywhere. Like, it's going to be a matter of minutes before they know who took them or where they are. Like, you, this is not going to be like the great Ocean's Eleven caper. This is going to be some staff member, security personnel person, Fan who took a wrong turn and ended up in the locker room. This won't. This won't be uh, difficult to solve, will it? I mean, don't you think they'll be able to figure out pretty quickly who took the shoes? Feels like it, because I mean, we were talking about this with the kids, and it's like every entry way into that locker room is going to have a camera on it. You would think, unless somebody figured out a loophole or there was some kind of inside job that was arranged here, but feels kind of weird. I don't. There's just something weird about the story i don't quite know what it uh is but i know now that i know what the shoes look like and i know that they look cool and i know that they apparently have some kind of value to them you think it's a marketing move like it you know there there's an implied value when somebody is willing to steal something that hey these are pretty cool like not the worst marketing move do you think somebody with the uh with her marketing team just misplaced them and and then this will turn up, oh, it's just a big misunderstanding, like 24 hours from now. Who knows? Moving on, uh, the number four. Are we on number four? Number four story as you see it. Okay, before we move on, no, I don't think that Sabrina is, like, falsely saying that her shoes were misplaced. But um, as part of a larger marketing plan, I don't know. I'm just saying. It's, it's convenient that we're all now talking about the shoe and looking at the shoe. Many of us were excited about the shoe before, but now there's more chatter about it. Okay. Number four, moving on. White Sox uh, shortstop uh, has his suspension reduced to five games. This is Tim Anderson. He had a six-game suspension for fighting Cleveland's Jose Ramirez 
This triggered a bench-clearing brawl. That's really hard to say. A bench-clearing brawl. It was reduced to just five games by Major League Baseball on Thursday under, under a settlement. He'll start serving the punishment on Friday when the White Sox open up a three-game series at Colorado. He served two games after initially being suspended for three. Uh, this was a fight that started when Ramirez slid headfirst into second base between Anderson's legs with an RBI double. He seemed upset by a hard tag and jumped to his feet. Words were exchanged. Ramirez pointed at Anderson's face as the second base umpire tried to step between them. Anderson dropped his glove, challenged Ramirez by raising his hands and assuming a boxer stance. <laughs> Punches were thrown. Ramirez connected with a blind shot that dropped Anderson on his backside. I love that you have the play-by-play -play of this, and I love that the uh, major, people at Major League Baseball apparently watched the video and said, you know what, Anderson's had enough. Um, you know, let's let's shave some time off his suspension. I think the knockout was enough. You know, he got caught, and we come to find out he's not all that great a teammate. You know, I kind of picked that up you, during that Donnybrook on the field as the benches were clearing. Uh, I kind of picked up that, you know, I remember saying that that day on radio, that some of his teammates didn't exactly rush in the middle of that one. And, oh, by the way, it was the perfect place for a brawl to take place out at second base. You have you don't have the catcher there to interfere. The umpire's out there, but he very quickly and wisely got out of the way and said, hey, this is going to be a hockey fight. And he got, you know, just like the hockey officials get out of the way. He got out of the way and he let the punches be thrown. He wasn't about to get caught. And it took a while from people, you know, running from the bullpens and the dugouts to get there. Like if this fight takes place in center field, the bullpens get there faster. If this fight takes place at home plate, the dugouts get there faster and there's a catcher there to, to run interference. The fact that it ha happened at second base, there was just so much space around these guys that it allowed them to square off. Anderson looks like he's taking off oven mitts as he's throwing his glove down and raising his fist. And then the best part is, like, he appears to be the one who wants to fight. Like, he assumes a good boxing stance and then promptly takes that hook to the jaw and it drops him and he's wobbly after that. But baseball uh, has good fights. Let's just say that. And baseball... It's not like the fake fights in the NBA, and it's not like the NFL where people are just grabbing face masks. Baseball has proper fights. Hockey probably has better fights. But, um, you know, Anderson had enough, and I think baseball shaved the suspension justifiably so. The number five story as you see it. Speaking of fights in baseball, the Yankees are losing a fight for uh, a winning season. So it doesn't look like they're going to make it to the playoffs. In fact... They are sitting at 60 and 61. It's the latest uh, series of losses in a season where they've been under 500. The first time the, the, since 1995 they've been under 500, and that's when nine of the 26 players on the active roster were not even born yet. Something's really wrong with them. They actually led the Marlins 7-3 to going into the bottom of the ninth last Sunday and still managed to lose 8-7. to seven. Then they went to the Braves. They got pounded by the Braves 11-3 to three on Monday, shut out 5-0 to zero on Tuesday, and then lost as well on Wednesday 2-0. to zero. What is going wrong with the Yankees, and do we care? I think we do care, and I think they, it creates some context for the larger sports scene. Just to put it in perspective, the Yankees have a 30-year streak of consecutive winning seasons. And, you know, in, in competitive sports in professional sports with 
uh, payroll uh, becoming a thing. And in baseball, of course, there's no salary cap. There's no ability for the other teams to say, hey, you can't spend more than us. The Yankees have outspent teams over the years, and it has helped them on that 30-year streak. But let's just put it in perspective. The New England Patriots, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady era, had 19 consecutive winning seasons. Um, the San Antonio Spurs in the NBA had 22 consecutive winning seasons between uh, 1998 and 2019. The Pittsburgh Penguins currently have 17 straight winning seasons in the NHL. But, you know, the, the Spurs have had four losing seasons in a row. I just mentioned how great they were on that 22-year run. They've had four losing seasons in a row. The longest active streak in the NBA, does anybody know? The longest active streak for consecutive winning seasons in the NBA, believe it or not, is, do you know it? Say it at your radio. Who is it? Who do you think it is? Do you have any? It's the L.A. Clippers. The lowly Clippers. Longest active streak. A mere 12 seasons in the NBA. But, uh, you know, Yankee fans who are, by the way, are the biggest bandwagon fans out there. Unless you grew up, even if you grew up rooting for the Yankees, you were probably a bandwagon fan. I'll just say that. I don't like the Yankees. If you root for the Yankees, you root for U.S. Steel. I mean, come on. You don't know an underdog. But it's got to be just alarming for Yankees fans who are freaking out right now because they're going, oh, my gosh, we're below 500. Let me tell you, I rooted for teams that lost 100 games in a year. 62 and 100 is a hard thing to do. Nice even number in baseball. My Giants did that in the uh, in the 1980s. But uh, Yankees are calling for Brett Boone to be fired, Brian Cashman, the GM, to be fired. And uh, if the team does miss the playoffs and finish with a losing record, no doubt those things may may happen. But George Steinbrenner not around. His uh, his son Hal is running the organization, and there's some thought that Hal may not want to eat the salaries of uh, Boone and Cashman. A very different era. Yankees have been plagued by injuries. Offensive uh, production hasn't been great, and uh, you know they just they have not been dynamic and. They have this season has been a, a big disappointment, but not looking good for the Yankees. Thirty-year streak in jeopardy. That's the five at five with Anna. Anna, I was talking about the haircuts with the girls. They're probably going to be mad at me for talking about the haircuts, but one of the daughters not happy about the haircut. What in the heck went wrong, or what happened at this beauty salon or barber shop or wherever you take the kids to get their haircuts? I have no idea what it's like to get your haircut these days. Well. It was a miscommunication. Uh, we've all had a bad haircut in our life, right? So we're going to chalk it up as a life lesson. We showed the stylist the style that she wanted and not necessarily the length. She wanted her hair to remain long. But the particular photo that we showed had kind of a shorter haircut. We wanted the layers, but not necessarily a whole bunch chopped off. So I think that I blame myself. I was there. I should have been mitigating this and, you know, figuring it out <clears throat> on her behalf. But, uh, yeah, it's never good when your nine-year-old ends the haircut um, and crumples into tears and you're there to witness it and feel terrible about it. So, yeah, it's she'll live. She'll survive. It'll be, a, it'll be something she'll probably go to therapy about someday. It's a teachable moment. That's what I say. Leave it here. Jason Puckett, KJR in Seattle, is next. You know, people ask, well, would somebody else have taken that and, and run with it if they're offered? No. The, the answer is no, because we had something that was going to be uh, successful. 
right here in a regional lineup with a, a hundred year old conference. So no, we could have made it work and we could have actually closed the gap on, on the SECs and the big 10 um, situation, looking through rose colored glasses. If this would have worked out um, the schools that we had, and, and Oh, by the way, we got better, not worse. When Colorado left, we had a chance uh, to add a member that would have made us better. And, and that group uh, could have got some things done. And that's what we were all thinking we were headed towards. So yeah, Furious, as I've said, um, mad at, at, at the, the moment for sure, but channeling that energy to what's next. And, and that's where we're going to go. And we're fighting for our student-athletes. And we're going to do everything we can to put them in the best position. Um, and I do not believe that was, was the best position when other options were available uh, and, and um, for student-athletes. And um, it, just, it just is what it is. So we, we now we pick up the pieces and we go get something done. Well, we heard from Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, on yesterday's show. And if you missed the podcast of that, go back and grab it. Listen to it. I thought Barnes was strong talking about the plight of Oregon State and their plan A, the possible rebuild of the Pac-12 conference, all of that. Uh, whatever you think about the possible rebuild of the conference as it stands now, Scott Barnes' comments are interesting. He takes a shot at Colorado. He basically pushes back and says, look, it shouldn't all be about the money. And, you know, I wanted to get a perspective of kind of where Washington State fits into Oregon State's thinking. There's nobody better to do that than Jason Puckett, who hosts a show on KJR in Seattle. I join him once a week. He's been kind enough to join us back. Puck, take the temperature for me with Washington State fans. Where are they today? Where's their mindset? What are they thinking? Um. Well, I still think uh, hurt, probably still, still probably some level of disappointment and and anger, and I think it's going to take a while to probably get over that. I think that's why they need the football season to start immediately. They need to get a win over Colorado State, uh, which will be a tough game, and then and then Northern Colorado, and then of course their week three against Wisconsin. But I think they need the college football season to start, John, so they can get over kind of the hurt and anger, and then some type of quick resolution. And I think they just want to know where they're going, whether it's going to be a, a you know a revamp pack four with all this stuff, or or maybe it's a, you know they're dancing with the Mountain West. I just think that this being hung out to dry right now is kind of frustrating for a lot of alums. Yeah, and I think Scott Burns came on the show yesterday, and you know he talked about it being a matter of days, not weeks. I think they have to get clarity before the start of the season, don't you? Like, they, I don't think they can get into that season with this hanging overhead. Yeah, I mean, that's the, yeah, exactly right. And I, I love that interview. It was great, great job. I mean, I hope that people of Portland understand what type of treasure they have in you. I just hope they understand that because you're <laughs> unbelievable, man. And, you know, and for and I, all your bosses, more money, more money for Kansas. Um, yeah, I, I think that he's right. I think he's, I think he's 100% right. They, I think both schools need to know immediately where they're at so they can just go to, you know, plan B and whatever plan B is. Maybe they have a different plan B or, or maybe they, as Scott said, that, they are attached at the hip, and they will go to the Mountain West. But I just think for the san- uh, the sanity of of the two fan bases, there just needs to be a quick resolution to this. Do you trust Stanford? I mean, given everything that we have seen in the, in the last year, do, should Washington State and Oregon State trust Stanford? What if Stanford doesn't get in the ACC? They turn around and they say, okay, we're in this with you. Do you, uh, do you kind of look at him like Larry David, like, can I trust you? That Give him that glare? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'll be honest. I don't trust anyone, and, and and this is, and I love the bees. I don't trust Oregon State. 
and, and I, I just don't. I don't. I don't trust any of these people. I mean, I don't trust you know the beaver. I don't trust it when he's got the chainsaw in his hand. I don't trust any of these guys because uh, why would anybody? And and and, by, and vice versa. Why would Oregon State trust Washington State? I mean, we we've just seen this this whole thing of of you know people that have long standing relationships telling them one thing and then. You know, less than 24 hours doing something completely different. Now, I, I mean, I think Oregon State, Washington State is, you know, what Scott said, I think they are in line with, with one another. But I think you've got to be real leery of Stanford and trust anything uh, that they say. And then on, on, on top of that, I'd be leery a little bit of Oliver Luck just from a standpoint of he's, he's committed to Stanford. He's got a history with Stanford. I, I would be a little leery of him talking to the other schools. I don't know what you think and, and helping them out, but – is he putting a little extra work in for Stanford? Uh, that would cause a little concern for me. I, I'm torn, too, because he talked about flexibility as though it were advantageous, you know, in meaning that you take fewer teams, maybe you don't have huge buyouts, maybe it's a shorter-term commitment. But I'm trying to weigh whether, you know, doing something short-term for Washington State and Oregon State is better, or do they need to know, hey, this is where you're going to be for like six or eight years. Do you think you can? Do you think Jake Dickert can recruit to with kids going? Hey, you know you're in the rebuilt pack four for now, but it could be a Mountain West in two to three years. Or where am I playing in two to three years? Or do you? How do you think kids think? I, I don't. I'm well. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea how kids. There's so much. They they think so much differently. And in this world of NIL, I mean, there will be two schools that will get will get picked over more than any other two schools in this country. And that will be Oregon State and Washington State. They will get, uh, unfortunately, will get gutted this offseason. Uh, because they, they recruit their asses off. They do a great job. I mean, you got, you know, one of the top quarterbacks, freshmen in the country. I mean, what's the likelihood that that kid stays, stays around? Or he's going to be hoarded after uh, in terms of other programs. And I think the same thing for Dickert. I mean, if it wasn't a challenge already of keeping your guys in the Pac-12, this, I, you know, what is going to be used against him in negative recruiting is, hey, they don't have a home. They may be in the Mountain West. You don't want to play in the Mountain West. You're too good for the Mountain West. So I, I know they make a lot of money. No one's going to feel sorry for him, John. But their role as head coaches now and just coaches in general is just a, a brutal. And, you know, they'll lose, they'll lose countless assistants and coordinators because those guys, if they're good, will – We'll jump to new gigs. I'm thinking about uh, Arbuckle, who's the new offensive coordinator at Washington State, and you know, a bright mind, up and comer uh, in this business. If he can turn around Cam Ward this year and has a great season offensively, he's one and done. He's out. He'll find a new gig, and, and no one would blame him. Jason Puck at KJR in Seattle. Uh, Puck, the the season you mentioned Arbuckle. How important is it that he and Cam Ward gel and they look more creative and dynamic on offense this season? I, Number no, I, for me it's the number one key. I mean, they they've just got it. There's a lot of fanfare with with Cam Ward when when he came in and transferred into Washington State. And listen, he wasn't terrible last year, but he, but he wasn't great. He he wasn't billed as is the guy that I think that a lot of the fans thought he was going to be. And the offense last year was not creative. It was just you know nothing vertical, all horizontal. There was no imagination with, with their offense. And, and so Arbuckle's got to come in and has a reputation of being able to be a little bit more creative, using the tight ends more, running the ball more, having different sets so not everything looks the same. But the number one thing that fans want to see is the ability to push the ball downfield. I think he's the key to the whole season. I think defensively they'll be fine. 
They were fine a year ago. Jake Dickert's a head coach, and he'll be good in that department. And they got a lot of returning guys. It's offensively. They have to score more points uh, than the other team. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, I know that's just kind of, you know, duh, but that, that's the key for them. So I think that our buckle is, is the key to the whole season. Wilner and I were talking about the season. He said it was a weird season. And I was talking to Mike Bellotti, the former Oregon coach, and he said, I don't know how much it means. And I disagree with that because, mm. it, to me, it feels like the season finale of Sopranos or Breaking Bad, like I mean, the series finale of Game of Thrones. Like, this is, you know, there, there's intrigue in it. It's probably not going to please everybody. But I feel like this is really important. You? I, I mean, I do, but I, but I think I understand maybe where, where Bilotti's coming from. If I just use, like, The Sopranos or Game of Thrones, like, you just knew, like, those two series, right, or any series, when they have a long run, it's eventually going to come to an end. And it wasn't like the actors on those shows were leaving to go join a rival television show <laughs> or start their own TV show because they were unhappy where they're at. So... I think from that standpoint, it, it's going to be a little weird, and there's going to be a lot of bitterness uh, about this final season. And I think once it gets going, and hopefully we have a terrific season. Uh, but, yeah, I think it, it, for me personally, it's, it's going to be maybe hard to get into it uh, more than I have in the past just because of, of what the future holds. I mean, I'm going to try to go as – I mean, I'm a season ticket holder for Washington State. I mean – I try to go as many home games as I, I possibly can. You know, I'm going to try to make some road games. You know, it's been a long time since I've been at UCLA. Uh, Washington State hasn't played there in a long time. And, and so, you know, that's the last time that, that I'll be able to watch my alma mater probably play there ever again in, in the Rose Bowl. So I want to go see that. And I think it'll be kind of like a retirement tour is, is kind of the feel to it. I love that. I, I love that you're going on the road. You're ta- are you taking the show on the road? Go on the road with everything. I uh, probably, you know what, the damn good idea. Can you get, uh, you know, hopefully we get iHeart to pick up the yes. bill on that one. They'll probably stick it to me. Now, why don't you pay for it? But, you know, that's, you know, for me, what I'm going to miss most about it, and it's not just how it affects my school. It's just I, I like all the other schools, despite having, you know, you know this, this rivalry with them. You know, I've been to Eugene a million times to watch a football game. You know, I love that atmosphere. It's one of the best college uh, campuses, atmospheres, especially for football. I was there two years ago on that night game, and it was just awesome. Everything about it is fun. And I've been to Corvallis a bunch of times. Have a great time every time I'm there. And I wanted to see, you know, the new, you know, the new stadium when it's all done. I've been to Cal. I've been to UCLA. I'm in. I'm in to all of them. And you know, it's the, that's what I'm going to miss because you know I, I've I've grown fond for those programs and. And those, you know, stadiums and things like that, and, and to you know, no longer have it, um, I'm just, I'm just kind of sad for all of it being gone, uh, all of it being, being do, uh, done and finished with. All right, Scott Barnes, uh, Oregon State AD. I asked him, you know, do, will you play Oregon? He says he's not ready to commit yet. It sounds like he's st- it's still too raw for him. You, you have any sense on the Apple Cup? I mean, if what if Washington says, you know, we won't, we'll only play at a neutral site or we'll only play it at our place. Is Pat Chun or, you know, Schultz, is Washington State going to play the Apple Cup? I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think they should. Uh, me personally, I don't want to play anymore. But I think from their standpoint, at least what they have said publicly and, and at least have uh, led us to believe that I think the option of playing it in a neutral site in Seattle, which has been floated out, which I think what is what Washington wants to do, play it at Lumen Field, which is the home of the Seahawks, 
that that appears to me to be off the table for Washington State. Mm. That, that that's not what they want to do. And I think if Washington could win out with this debate, they would play it there, and then they would play it in the beginning of the season, like you see with Colorado and Colorado State. And I, and I would just say the the biggest reason why it, it should be a, a you know home and home series one that's just kind of for the most part that's always how they've done it. There's a financial aspect to it too with, with Pullman. It's just not about the home teams keeping the gate. They would they would split the revenue, you know, for Lumen Field. In fact, Washington actually would take a bath on that one because their stadium is bigger and they wouldn't get all the gate receipts. But it's the financial impact it is for for Pullman. You know, you've been there. There's ten weeks a year. Uh, weekends that that really puts money into that economy. You know, it's the football games, it's graduation, you know, homecoming things like that. That that's where they they charge you a bunch for hotels, the restaurants, all the businesses need those weekends. And the Apple Cup is one of the biggest weekends. It's the, you know it's the single biggest weekend because all the hotel rooms are full, all the restaurants are full. If you take it away from Pullman, you really are going to neuter that that town and uh, and I think that's what they're fighting for and that that's the only option for Washington State is if you just continue the game uh, with a home and home Jason Puckett KJR in Seattle follow him on Twitter listen to him on KJR Puck thank you man appreciate you you're the best pay him more people (laughs) I love that you're making it all about money all the time about money with these teams leaving about the gate and the hotels yeah it's all about money John that's (laughs) that's all we've learned about thanks man Really good stuff from Jason Puckett, KJR in Seattle. I go on his show every week. Really nice of him to return the favor. Um, you know, he made it about the money there, and it's interesting that he did because it's a conversation I had with my father this morning. Got me thinking about money and sports and a bank robbery. I'll tell you more about that coming up. I was having a conversation with my father this morning on the phone in which we were kind of lamenting that so much of sports has become all about the money. It's all about the money when it comes to college expansion, forget tradition, forget kickoff times. I mean, it's been a theme on today's show, really, if we if you think about it. Our interviews with Chris Hill, the former Utah athletic director. If you missed that, grab the podcast of it. Uh, Jason Puckett, KJR in Seattle. Grab the podcast of those interviews. Uh, I think they're valuable. I think it's interesting to get the perspective from other people in other markets. But, uh, again, I digress. I was talking to my dad today. My dad said, look, it's always been about the money. You follow the money if you want to find out uh, what's going on. And, of course, we all know that logically. But, you know, I, I've just been thinking a lot about it, especially after the comments from Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, on yesterday's show. And certainly uh, we uh, see the release of the NBA schedule today and the Trailblazers schedule out and Damian Lillard, who will be making uh, damn near $60 million a year by the time he's done with the current contract that he's on. I mean, Hell, we're going to see players make a million dollars a game in the NBA someday. Like we, we'll, that's not that far away. It doesn't feel like with the new TV deal on the horizon and the collective bargaining agreement and all of that nonsense. But I saw a story today that kind of underscores just the general theme. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs superfan has been indicted on bank robbery and money laundering charges. Federal grand jury I- indicted uh, a Chiefs superfan named. Xavier Babadour, who's 29 years old, he's accused of three counts of armed bank robbery, 11 counts of money laundering. Um, Federal prosecutors allege that Babadour laundered the proceeds through casinos in the Midwest and that he used the funds from his bank robberies to attend Kansas City Chiefs home and away games. He's known as Chiefsaholic on social media. 
He wore a gray wolf suit to games, was often shown on the broadcast. If you're a diehard fan of the Chiefs or you've seen a bunch of their games, you know who I'm talking about. But apparently he's been linked to six robberies and two attempted robberies in a nine-month stretch between uh, Iowa and Oklahoma, where he was first arrested. They allege that he stole more than $800,000. And uh, he even fled while he was out on bond in Oklahoma. And uh, after he got $100,000 in winnings from an Illinois sports book from bets he placed on Patrick Mahomes to win the NFL MVP and for Kansas City to win the Super Bowl. But he cut his ankle monitor, fled the state. He's been on the run for three months. He got captured by the FBI in early July in Sacramento. And now the government has come out and uh, basically said that... uh, that, uh, that, you know, this is a guy who's been funding his fan uh, passion, his passion for the Chiefs, through bank robberies. Now, his attorney, Matthew Merriman, who's his defense attorney, said in a statement, it, the truth is that since 2018, Chief Saholic has entertained, inspired, unified, and motivated Kansas City Chiefs fans and Chiefs Kingdom and hundreds of millions of football fans around the globe. Uh, the attorney said, quote, it's now the fourth quarter of the most important game of Javier's life, and his legal team believes that his innocence will ultimately be proven to the public, end quote. This is sure to be a spectacle. Uh, I don't know if you can get betting odds on this thing. Stephen's nodding. But I also am looking at this, and I'm left thinking, like, you know, if you were going to be a bank robber, like, are there worse things that you could spend your money on than your sports passion? Or, by the way, does it take being a bank robber these days to be able to afford to go to Chiefs games and to go to go to road games? I don't know. I digress. I'm sure there's a lot of law-abiding citizens out there that are fans of teams. But I got to be honest with you. I did look around the Pac-12 conference this season, including Oregon State, at the cost of going to home football games in the Pac-12. It's prohibitive. It's not, it's not just the kickoff times. People talk about the kickoff times being bad or maybe the competition and the non-conference schedules, not what you dreamed it would be. I know plays uh, opens their season with Portland State and in non-conference games you've got UC Davis and San Diego State coming to Reeser Stadium, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of buzz and fanfare about the opening of Reeser Stadium, but, you know, I buy tickets to both stadiums. I often give them away on this radio show. And I do find that the costs are becoming more and more challenging. And I kind of wonder, with between the college teams and professional sports, which is way out of hand, the college games are way more affordable, I kind of wonder, you know, uh, how families are, afford to go to an NBA game if they're not getting tickets for free. Like, you know, where are you sitting? Where are you eating? Where are you parking? And I think it's just become more and more difficult for regular families and regular folks to go to games. And that comes in addition to the challenges of actually getting to the game and getting and, the, and dealing with kickoff and dealing with a crowded sports calendar and dealing with the youth sports events that your kids are playing in. And then I'm left seeing this story about the Kansas City Chiefs fan, which probably belonged in the 5 at 5. It's kind of that wacky story that Anna usually digs up. But I'm looking at it and I'm going, hey, there's there's kind of there's some sins and there's some truth buried in this story. Like first and foremost, you know, you got a fan who it it sounds like a movie. It's catch me if you can. You know, maybe Leonardo DiCaprio plays, you know, the super fan when they make the movie out of this thing. But I, you know, you've seen these fans at games, and I used to cover the Raiders. I would go to like the Oakland Coliseum 
when the Raiders were playing. And I kind of always just wondered, who are these people who are dressing in costume, who go to every game, who are, you know, jockeying for camera position, you know, just to get like four seconds of on the camera, you know, in the pregame or maybe during a celebration or whatnot. And, you know, I talked to a lot of those fans and they were working regular jobs. Like this one guy who looked like he, you know, arrived on a Harley Davidson and he painted his face and he was wearing like a leather vest. And, I, you know, he's a nurse at like the Children's Hospital in Oakland. And I was like, man, this is the other side of your secret life. Like, you know, this is your outlet. That's cool. But I've often kind of thought like, you know, who are these people who can afford still to go to games? And, you know, I know a lot of businesses, a lot of, you know, you go to see NBA games now, you'll find a lot of the tickets are gobbled up by sponsors and corporate partnerships and whatnot. And I get it. The teams need to uh, need to do good business and need to make money. You know, they have to pay the players uh, trying to turn a profit. But in the end, I am looking around the world of sports, and I often do this because I relate with three kids. You know, when we go to travel or we go to go to a game or we go to go to see a concert or a play or the Nutcracker or whatever it is. We were talking earlier today, Disney on Ice or the Wiggles or whatever we were going to when the kids were little. Like, it doesn't feel like it was that prohibitive. And I'm looking now and I'm seeing like, you know, yes, there's some inflation factored in here. But there's also just the fact that these teams, as I started this segment talking about, are all chasing the money to the detriment of the fan base. Chasing the money, chasing the TV deal, you know, dragging your team across the country into a new conference. Not just one program, a whole bunch of them. With nobody asking serious questions about how it affects, you know, the tennis team or the women's basketball team. We all sort of just say, well, football's driving this. You know, it's, yeah, of course football's driving it, but should it be? Like, maybe somebody like Chris Hill, the former Utah AD, said on the show today, maybe somebody should raise a hand and go, hey, wait a minute. Isn't there, aren't we smart people here? Can't we figure out how to do this without dragging all these teams across the country? Hell, Chip Kelly, for crying out loud, suggested why not just separate football? It's different than the other sports. It seems pretty simple. Why won't they? Money. Because they don't want to go back to the TV partners and go, hey, we just want to splinter out football. What would, do we, can we give some of the money back? never happen right well chiefs fan facing uh you know a, a jury of his peers and his day in court super chiefs fan but uh i just kind of shook my head it's kind of an absurd story you know i made the headlines and in, in all the national sports media websites and such but i also thought you know it kind of dovetails with the stuff we've been talking around and about you know here's a guy who uh r- you know robbed a bunch of banks allegedly and used the money to go be a super fan. And I'm left going, well, I bet there's a lot of fans and families out there going, you know what? You pretty much have to rob a bank to go to all the games that this guy was going to, to travel on the road, for crying out loud, to go to the games. But the Blazers' season schedule comes out. I'm looking at the schedule. I'm kind of wondering where, you know, how many of these games, if any, will Damian Lillard play in? How empty will the arena fill? And I'm also thinking about the fans who would probably just love to go to an NBA game, as I did as a kid when my Warriors just stunk. I was just happy to be in the NBA arena. I didn't care if they were losing a bunch of games. I didn't care who was in the lineup. I just wanted to see an NBA game. And I just wonder, in today's world, when I see the ticket prices to go to Moda Center and watch the Blazers play, I wonder who can afford it. I wonder what kind of families can afford it. I'll leave you with that. A little bit of, little bit of pressure back on Oregon, Oregon State, the Blazers timbers to uh, make it more accessible for families.
Me, I get it. I get it. I'm asking you to take a little less money. But, you know, maybe you can have a section like some of the some of the schools do. I know Oregon State and Oregon do a family section. I know you can have a section, but, you know, I guess if the demand's there, the market doesn't lie. But I'm kind of looking at the NBA season this year and the Blazers' trajectory. There's going to be a lot of empty seats. Why not fill them? Why not engage with your fans, for, you know? Not your super fans. We don't want anybody robbing a bank, but your fans. All right, grab podcast of today's show. We had great interviews with Chris Hill, the former Utah AD. He was lights out, fired up. Great interview. Jason Puckett, KJR in Seattle. Puck was uh, all over kind of the sentiment, the sentiment of Washington State as it pertains to their saga, Oregon State and Washington State, in this thing together. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.